Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, back from Comic-Con, another great year. Man, I've been going since uh, 2006. I took two years off, 2008 and 2009, nonstop since 2010. And uh, it was another adventure, lots of fun. Proud of my guys, uh, Art Balthazar and Franco. They were spotlight guests. Proud of my uh, friend Jill Thompson. She was a spotlight guest as well. She won an Eisner. Art and Franco were nominated for an Eisner. They didn't win. Uh, oh, yeah, Comics, the store, was nominated. It didn't win, but uh, good representation and uh, very happy for all my friends out there. Uh, met some of you, and it was really nice. I, I appreciated everyone who recognized me and said, hey, aren't you John from Word Balloon? Yes, I am. And uh, shook some hands and thanked people uh, directly for listening to the podcast. As I say, anytime you're at a convention, if you if you listen to the show, please let me know. And I can uh, tell you one-to-one how much I appreciate you listening. Uh, some uh, great panels today that I was a part of. I've got the uh, podcast panel for you. And then I've also got a Rob Salkowitz panel. Uh, some inside baseball. Um, finally, there are statistics to back up what we've always suspected. Uh, the women in comics, uh, the interest in, uh, that women now have in comics, it isn't now. Uh, there have always been uh, women that are part of the geek culture. But the numbers show that it really is almost a 50-50 game. And uh, I will let you listen to that in uh, the second segment of Word Balloon. But we start off with uh, the podcast panel, and uh, it was great. Uh, we had uh, John and K. Mayo from Comic Book Page. Uh, Calvin Reed from Publishers Weekly and the PW Comics Weekly podcast, More to Come, and uh, myself and the great uh, writer of, man, I'll tell you, Planet Hulk, uh, currently writing uh, action comics for Superman, uh, Superman Batman, coming back to uh, the Incredible Hulk in the fall with the all-new, all-different Hulk. Uh, plus uh, some great uh, new creator-owned projects for Greg Pak, and uh, it was great to get Greg on uh, the show because uh, and on the on the panel because he uh, is a guy that has uh, you know been on podcasts since pod- comic book podcasting has begun, and he talks about how podcasting has helped him uh, get the word out about his projects, and it was good to get his perspective on the panel. So uh, great conversation today. Word Balloon is brought to you by the Cincy Comic Con which is uh, coming to Northern Kentucky uh, the weekend of September 12th and 13th. It's going to be great. It's at the uh, Northern Kentucky Convention Center, and really looking forward to uh, some of the great guests that are going to be at Cincy Comic Con. Of course, it's uh, put out by uh, Tony and Kara Moore and uh, some of their uh, other uh, comic uh, retailer professionals that are in the area, and they will feature such great guests as Rick Remender, Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher, Ryan Brown, Chris Burnham, who I saw at Comic-Con, Sean Crystal, Matthew Clark, Colin Bunn, uh, Adam uh, Withers and Comfort Love, Ming Doyle, uh, Mike Norton, Ray Fox, Mike Hawthorne, Kyle, Ho- Kyle Hotz, Kevin McGuire, Mike Morisi, Jeff Parker, Eric Powell, Derek Robertson, Phil Noto, Mark Schultz, Chris Sprouse, Ben Templesmith, Dave Wachter, just to name a few, Johnny Ryan, excellent uh, cross-section of artists and writers, uh, Bill Willingham, Matt Sturgis, and Chris Robertson are going to be doing a Fables feature panel. Rick Remender and Tony are going to be, uh, and also Mike Hawthorne, are going to be talking about the 10th anniversary of Fear Agent. 
Um, it's going to be great. And uh, it's the Cincy Comic Con, again, happening September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center, 1 West, West River Center Boulevard. Uh, and uh, I, I really hope you're going to be there. I always get great programming from this. I'll be moderating a whole bunch of panels and uh, bringing you coverage on Word Balloon. But uh, I look forward to it each year. And uh, Tony and Kara are great hosts. It's it's great. It's always a, just the perfect vibe of for me, like what always ends up being that last summer convention. And uh, it's uh, it's just a great, mellow vibe. It's an intimate enough convention that I think you'll get quality time with the creators that you want to meet. And it's a great opportunity to get original art and sketches and uh, great uh, memorabilia and back issues. Honestly, uh, you're going to be covered, and they make it simple. So if you want to get tickets, go to CincyComicCon.com and uh, join us. It's going to be a great thing. Cincy Comic Con, it's September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. All right, let's get things started with uh, our uh, 10th Annual Podcaster Panel. Now, here's the deal. We were at the library. Because Comic-Con keeps expanding as much as it does, we weren't even able to do it on the convention uh, center. And to be honest, I was a little nervous because, um, you know, I have working journalists on this, and it's sometimes uh, tough, and we had a lot of people. In fact, uh, the Comic-Con program said I was going to have Mark Bernardin from Playboy.com. He couldn't come. Too, too much time off the floor. Jimmy Aquino from Comic News Insider couldn't come. Too much time off the floor. Saturday at noon was where, when it was at. So I was really nervous. And uh, I knew that, uh, that uh, John and Kay and myself would uh, be able to attend. But we were a little concerned if um, some of our other experts wouldn't make it. Calvin Reed from Publishers Weekly shows up. And in fact, um, you'll tell because I really started... Uh, actually, John Mayo is the guy who recorded this, and thank you, John. Uh, but I wanted to keep in a lot of the uh, pre before we started the panel stuff because that gave us a chance really to talk to the audience and uh, hear about what's going on. One guy in particular was uh, telling us some, uh, you know, creators that he met and also just what it was like getting comics at his local retailer. And so that was good. And then the guy started walking in. Like I say, I feel like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life because uh, I knew Greg Pak was going to show up and give us his perspective on comic book podcasting. But when Calvin showed up, that was terrific. The reason why I always have John on this panel is John Mayo. Um, he really covers the diamond numbers and the statistics and really can tell you the trends of what's going on in what the retailers are buying and, uh, you know, obviously all ultimately what the readers are reading, but it's nice to hear uh, what comics are being ordered and uh, just the changing, shifting trends in comic books. And Calvin as well, because not only does he cover mainstream, but he also covers independent comics as well, and uh, also covers the uh, book market for Publishers Weekly, uh, the Barnes and Nobles and surviving bookstores uh, that are out there, both uh, Chain, Amazon, things like that, uh, also digital books as well. We get into all of that, and uh, it's great to hear uh, what's going on. So, I mean, like I always say, it's it's like uh, I used to say sports writers at the Super Bowl, but I think in this case, too, it's almost like a crime scene, and we're three different detectives that have our different backgrounds, and we're standing over the body, and we're saying, what does it mean? You're going to hear that as well in the second segment as well In uh, as we uh, – pour over the uh, comic book uh, demographics, the geek demographics, who's going to conventions, who's buying what, what are they buying at conventions, and uh, it's eye-opening stuff. But first, we start with the uh, 10th Annual Comic Book Podcaster Panel, and like I said, it starts pretty informally, and then about uh, 25 minutes in, we, can t- we kick into the official start. So uh, here is uh, the Comic Book Podcaster Panel from San Diego Comic-Con, now on Word Balloon. 
If it ends up being pretty intimate, we're going to probably take a lot of use of that microphone and, and really make it a full discussion. So if, if there are things that you guys want to bring up, think about it, and we're happy to talk about it. So Absolutely. I mean, it's part of it is just getting the discussion going about comics. That's the whole reason I do my yeah. podcast. Greg Pock from... To be honest, this is my first one here that I've come to... See. The library? I was just happy to see that you're selling comics here. <laughs> <laughs> Are they selling them at the library? Well, I, I see comics, uh, you know, booths and things like that. Oh, sure. But, I mean, everything that you see on television or on the specials, you know, it's all the, you know, the booths and the people walking around, but, you know, they don't focus on, you know... They don't show the comics at the comic. Yeah, that's true. People wearing the stuff, but not really, actually. Yeah. No, no. And that's like always the misnomer about San Diego is that, like, you know, well, it's not about comics anymore. And it's like, no, actually, like, look in here. There's, like, really good comics programming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, did, um, I, you know, this isn't comics, but um, there's a fine art section right before you get to Artist Alley. And it's a little corner thing, and it's all original pulp illustrations. And they have the paintings and the pen and ink drawings, and they're selling them. And they are like five and literally six-figure prices on some of this stuff. But it's gorgeous, and it's really cool. And it's literally just this little corner, and you have to go in to really look at everything. But it's so worth checking out. And I'm actually, yeah, I'm going to mention it on Facebook, but I found it last night. That was the size of the bar salad. I mean, I went to New York there's Yes. Well, that's the one area where things I think have reduced a bit because now with video games and I mean literally and it's literally I think one of the reasons why we're here and rather not at the at the convention center so much of the landscape yeah the landscape is really they they want it for the movies and TV and stuff like that but yeah, believe me. And it's a comic con. No, I agree. But again, like a lot of like the convention programming up in the panels and stuff, I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's not all about Hall H. That's what mainstream media focuses on. Yeah. But if you really do, if you read through this, there are like one-of-a-kind panels that happen in San Diego in terms of like comics history and great opportunities to see current and uh, brand-new and old-timer you know, creators and stuff and really like getting an hour to talk and uh, being available for Q&A and stuff. Honestly, I, and that's one of the reasons why I come every year. I'm from Chicago, so. I'm trying to think of who passed away recently that used to do the Hulk. Well, Herb Trimpey just passed away this summer. Yeah, he's a great guy, big tall guy. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. Introduced me to him a couple years ago, and she knew him from the Albuquerque. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. Santa Fe. Oh, awesome. They actually got to be pretty good correspondents, you know, not going out with you know each other's spouses. But just electronic, and when they go to cons, they were, you know, hey, how are you doing? That's excellent. Yeah, no, that's, and especially at the smaller shows, that is like you get more one on one time like that. He was the most friendly guy. Very cool. Uh, I mean, he was very open and very uh, friendly. Especially since I just met him. He's a very sweet guy, absolutely. No, I I got to meet him a few times over the years as well, too. Yeah, tremendous guy. I've got a cocktail napkin that he uh, sketched for me of Wolverine. Because he drew that Hulk issue where it wasn't technically... That, like, in one panel was the first appearance of Wolverine. Like the very last page. Exactly, exactly. But the next issue, Herb was the artist, and yeah, it was cool. Was that what it was? The issue number? Yeah. Oh, 
I don't know. I don't remember. I just, yeah, I don't know, man. I, yeah, I say, I, I mean, and don't get me wrong. There are people that, yeah, that was uh, 119. No, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, the very next issue, I think he actually was on the cover. You know, That's right, yeah, exactly. Issue. Yep. Yeah, it yep. was only one panel on the last page of that. Yeah. Um, and like I said, the guy was, he was intimidated just from, you know, what his body of work was. But once you start talking oh, to no. him, he made you feel so comfortable. 99% would you guys agree of the creators are like ridiculously nice people and warm and like They're totally cool, yeah. like appreciate the yeah. audience and yeah man so yeah. yeah like if there's anyone don't feel like nervous about approaching them. they're going to be great like literally one out of a hundred is like yeah great thanks <laughs> but that's but, but only one every, and there is one but, you know. for every yeah. one of those well, there's somebody on that other end of the, the, the spectrum that's even cooler than the average creator oh yeah absolutely and Trippy is really like one of those guys. Yeah, you're right. He is exceptional. Yeah, he was exceptional that way. And so, well, and just with the history that I mean, he contributed to, you think that you know he had every right to be a little bit arrogant, I guess, if he wanted to. But he never came across this being. You know, I mean, he was he was like almost gushing that he God, before he passed away, there was a Batman artist, Jim Apero, and he really didn't come to Comic Con until like late in his life, and he was blown away and didn't realize how many fans he had because during that same period as Herb Trimpey and stuff, it was this kind of either you were in New York and you were submitting your work or by mail, and there were only three or four conventions across the country, well, New York and Chicago. And the work they were doing, I mean, they weren't really getting the, the recognition. Of right. Or the paid for it. Yeah. And the guys from the Silver Age, like, um, and women as well, because Ramona Freighton, um, who started in the 50s and stuff, I saw her yesterday on a panel. And she's like, it's great, but she's like, i got to be honest, I wasn't aware. She's like, I knew people read the books, but it was just a job. And they didn't care about keeping their original art. They didn't care about, um, worried about, you know, hey, I created that character. I deserve some money now that it's a TV show or a movie or whatever. It was just like, no, it was a job. I got my paycheck. That's all I wanted. And, you know, okay. It was created because of it. Yeah. And the, uh, and the readers, of course. But. Yep. No, you're right, though. No, Image literally was created in response to, hey, man, we're tired of working for the man. Let's, yeah. you know, let's make our own money. And uh, yeah, man. And especially, you know, during the 90s, hey, Spider-Man sold 3 million uh, copies. Thanks a lot. Here's your paycheck. And it's like, uh, should I get some for this? No. Okay. Well, then maybe I'm not going to work for you anymore. And to be honest, every year they would, eat, they were just looking for health benefits. And they would tell a generation of creators, <laughs> health benefits, see you later. Uh, you kids coming out of college, you want to work in comics? Yes, sir. All right, great. We're going to spend two dollars, two fifty an hour to do it. Thank you, sir. I think the 90s kind of woke up a big business. To, I mean, well, I mean they, Absolutely. They, they saturated the market with so many different comics. That just... Well, it's like baseball cards, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It, it wasn't about, it really wasn't about the stories or the art. It was the gimmicks. Yeah. At, and you know. at that point in Austin, Texas, I was going to college there at the time. There were like literally 24 or more comic stores, card game stores around the, the city. In Austin, Texas, at the time, not big enough to support that. Then that was right when the boom and the bust hit. Uh, the speculator market just dried up, and now there are, and this is years later, uh, four main stores. See, and the city is much bigger now. Now, I, I live in a small town in Indiana called Kokomo. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm from Chicago, so yeah, go okay. on. Yeah, there are, our claim to fame was uh, the uh, author of Clifford the Big Red Dog. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's he, cool. He was born there. How far is Kokomo from, Indiana, uh, from Fort Wayne? Uh, from 
four waves, probably about an hour and maybe an hour and ten minutes tops. Okay, because one of our main sponsors is was based. And actually, they still are in Fort Wayne. They're they're moving their operation to Memphis. It's really but. not bad. It's like Cook Mode in Peru, and uh, then you hang up right in Peru and right into Fort Wayne. It's okay, not really that far. I mean, you can take a twenty-two to sixty-nine. Dennis Cowan, I believe, is from Indiana. Didn't I'm know pretty that. sure. Um, you know, uh, uh, what's his, Zach Crusey would be able to tell us. Like, yeah, he would. People. They, have a, they have a convention in Fort Wayne called Appleseed. Oh, really? Or they used to, and I forget what it's called now, but it used to be called Appleseed. But, yeah, if you look Fort Wayne, it's usually in May, and it's a good show. And Zach's, like, like cultivated a good relationship with a lot of artists. Actually, uh, Gilbert and uh, Jamie uh, Hernandez. Uh, who did Love and Rockets and are you know great alternative comics and stuff? They came to the show and Jim Steranko came one year. If you know Jim Steranko, he's here at the show. Jim Steranko is one of the guys that created Shield. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Back in, and Jim's another guy like that that you know isn't getting any money from you know you, I, I as far as I know. All, all the way through the '90s, '80s. I mean, I still had like I had the original Secret Wars and uh, sure. Iron Man with the, you know the black outfit. Hilarious. You know, that's that's worth money. <laughs> origin of Venom hadn't even been created. It was like he thought, of, I want a new costume. And a that was the era I got into Marvel. I was mainly a DC yeah. guy up to then. Had gotten, I think, Fantastic Four, Alpha Flight, the John Byrne stuff. See, I was Fantastic Four, too. I loved Fantastic Four. And still, I, I collected them uh, off and on. Uh, eBay helped out a lot because yeah. uh, a lot of places I lived didn't have conflicts. Sure. Since this was my first trip here. I uh, they just opened up a new comic book shop in Oak Park. The only one they had, and I'm friends with the owner. And of course, he put his heart, soul, and bank <laughs> into this uh, shop, so he doesn't get to you know go out and travel and do things like this. And I made sure I got him a couple of uh, exclusive uh, San Diego Comic Con toys so he can you know, put them on display. And cool. And uh, I did the same thing with New York. I got him like a black and white cover of. The Star Wars, the Dark Horse one that they were doing for the original script that wasn't really published. So I picked them up that. I got a first order Stormtrooper action figure for them. And I just, I want them to, you know, let them know that people are supporting them and appreciate the fact that, you know, it's not a moneymaker owning a comic book shop. I mean, especially the one the size he has. I mean, unless you have Buku backwards or back histories, I mean, you're not making it. Or if you've got a um, a big subscription list of customers too, yeah. But, I mean, this is I mean, his comic book shops maybe from the wall to the wall. Sure. That wall, I mean, it's very very small. Well, He's it's got a lot of, uh, loyal following. It's a tough business to be a retailer in because I mean, yeah. there's so much stuff coming out. There's so many different interests, and the readers are somewhat fickle. If well, they don't like an issue, yeah, they'll stop. I mean, it, yeah. you know, you run out of an issue, you know, like, well, I'll just go off. Exactly. Yes. No, it's even worse. Well, it's it's, yes. it's uh, the store he was referring to, Discount Comic Book Service in Fort Wayne. Uh, that's my comic book shop. I live in Austin, Texas. I get it all mail order. Oh, wow. <laughs> but they do terrific uh, customers. You're loyal to them. I mean, that's, yeah. that's nice, too. No, but, yeah, but it's more that yeah. the service that they provide compared to a local store. Well, and that's Absolutely. the thing. The and local store did wrong by him multiple times. And that, yeah, mom and pop, yeah, that's what happens and in mom and pop businesses, yeah. People don't forget that Absolutely. No, it happened to me when, in suburban Chicago, too. Yeah, yeah, well, when you have a subscription with your local store and you buy 
the more volume. A lot. than yeah. you should. Yeah. Because well. you're a voracious reader. Sure. And you go in to pick up that subscription, and they say, well, we decided you didn't actually want that copy of that or that copy of that. So we gave it to a customer who came in earlier while you were at work. We'll just get it for you later. You lose the loyalty of your voracious reader, but you may have kept the loyalty you of a, your occasional reader. Are you a podcaster? Yeah. yeah. No. Do you listen to one of our shows? No, thanks. For you listen Thank to my you. podcast? Um, I listen, I listen, I listen it's okay. To <laughs> what, what, which ones do you listen to? Um, hmm? I mostly listen to Batman. I, I really apologize. Mark want, truly wanted to come, and he's like, "John, it's noon on Saturday." Off, I'm like, "I get it. I know." Yeah. So I'm so so sorry. I, I, I listened to some of you guys um, when I saw the schedule, so I listened to a few, but not. Cool. Yeah, did you hear Mark on my show? I don't think I. I go go through the back catalog. We we really had a great. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I love what he does with Kevin. Yeah. But it was it was really fun hearing Mark on his own, and we got into things that he and Kevin don't talk about. We talked about Playboy.com. Honestly, is making this serious effort to cater to geeks purely from a fan, you know, and, and just giving them good articles and content. And that's one of the reasons why I had Mark on and stuff. So it, no, he's great, and that's it's too bad. And and I would say the same for Calvin Reed, who mm-hmm. who comes from Publishers Weekly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we we really try hard. To have smart, good people, because the and the, you know, I mean, something I'd say on the panel as well. The best and worst thing about a podcast is anyone can do it. Yeah, and there's nobody stopping you from doing it, which is fine. But I mean, that's the thing, and that's what I was explaining to the organizers as well. Is that we have serious journalists on this panel that are writing and also happen to have a, pod, uh, a, a podcast, and we want that perspective because they cover the industry and they and they kind of can tell you things. And, and we can share experiences, and we all interview different people. And it really is like kind of putting a puzzle together or just a discussion of, well, you know, what do you think of the movies and stuff? Well, I heard this. Well, that's actually not true because I talked to this industry person, and they told me this. And it, and it usually ends up being a very interesting discussion. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. And I think we'll be okay because, you know, John and Johnny and K have been doing it for a while too, so a long time. Well, I hope so. That would be great, man. Well, and the back catalog has the last few years of, of the podcast the, panels. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All the previous uh, podcasting panels we've done here at San Diego up on my feed and stuff. And, so, you know, I mean, this page. is the 10th year. and We'll get into it once we start in, like, 15 minutes or so. Um, but, yeah, I mean, no, things have changed dramatically since 2005. Or six is the first time we did it here. Um, and, yeah, it's amazing. And like, like we were just talking about online stores and stuff, and that kind of pressure and competition that retailers have. I mean, that's a big piece of the puzzle, yeah. Let me ask you guys this. So, like, my wife has made a rule of, like, how many actual converts I can have in the house. <laughs> I'm mostly digital. Yep. But I feel kind of bad about that. Why? I don't know. I feel like I should support the local stores. But like, well, that, well that, that... Go ahead, yeah. Uh, the main thing is to support the creators so we get the content being done, new stories coming out, because that's the best way to support a, a retailer is give them something to sell. We could so, almost start recording now, John. I have been. Are you have you have been? Oh, I'm so glad because let's keep all this stuff. And all wonderful. That's great. I'll send you the. We can even thing. keep my, my rant in if you. Yeah. Listen, you guys suck in here. <laughs> no, please don't do that. But, <laughs> you, you've got to have new content to sell, and if people are reading it digitally because they don't have the space for it, I totally get that. I've got closing in on sixty thousand comics. It takes room. I did yeah. mention he's a voracious reader. Did mm-hmm. I not? 
the whole concept of support your local retailer, because I got a lot of, of crap when I first went uh, going mail order. But it's like, you know, I am supporting a retailer. Okay, not local to me, but it's still out there. Right. Well, yeah, you know, it is an independent but Discount Comic Book Service is an independent business. It isn't a corporation. Um, it's got a brick-and-mortar store. Yes. Yeah. And um, especially if you, you know, most of the publishers that do digital, most of them do sell them on their own as well. So DC and Marvel, well, D- Marvel definitely does. DC, um, I don't know if you can buy direct from them or not. I know Comixology, obviously, but I don't think I, they do I have. Do. I get to the DC app. Okay, okay, there you go. Well, that's fine, but, and that's good. But I would even say, like, the smaller publishers and stuff, you're still supporting the books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really, once you get past Disney and Warner Brothers owning DC and Marvel, all, everyone else, literally, Dark Horse and IDW and all these... They're not, you know, raking in millions. I mean, they are, they are businesses. They are, you know, that are well, medium-sized businesses, I would say. Yeah. The other question I'd ask you if you're thinking about supporting your local comic shop is does your local comic shop have a web page that has an affiliate link to the place you're getting your digital comics? That's true, too. Because a number of them do. Yeah. You know, so then they might be getting the 5 or the 10% for those purchases, and you would still be supporting them and getting the format you yeah. want to read in. Yeah, that's a good point. So. Do you remember the first uh, Dark Horse comic that you First Dark Horse comic? That you ended up Thinking. It was probably one of their James Bond comics from the 90s. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I wasn't, I, I appreciated Hellboy, but I wasn't a reader. See, the movies brought me into Hellboy. I enjoyed the movies, but uh, and I even picked up one at a free comic book game. And, and the artwork was fantastic. And it was an abbreviated story. But, uh, are you guys the tech guys? Yeah. Can, and, uh, you know, just so, like, you know, if we really do end with this little, is there any way to bring up the microphone a little bit without feedback so that, like, we can pick them up uh, better if they're... Okay. Well, we might be all right. So speak up, guys. If, and, and, all, and by all means, use the microphone if you guys yeah. want yeah. while when we're When the panel too. starts, please use yeah, the microphone. Make it, yeah, make it like Oprah. We can pass around the microphone. <laughs> well, because that way we get it on the recording. And I'd be yeah. willing to like, walk around and hustle around if you guys have other comments. I remember, I think mine was back in the 80s. It was an old black and white. It came out right after James Cameron's Aliens, the second one. And it, that, that sucked me in. And okay. Then, and then, of course, Star Wars, Dark Empire. Sure. Yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah. yeah, actually, Dark Empire might have been before the the Bond comics. Now that I think of that it, just, that, I mean, yeah, it was good. Was fantastic. It was absolutely. No, they were great caretakers of all the Star Wars stuff, and really, Aliens and Predator were their bread and butter for years before. I was actually really surprised Malibu didn't stick around as long as they did. I mean, I, uh, well, they got bought out by Marvel. Oh, they did. They okay. yeah. Was it for their? I always for forget. the coloring is what I've heard. But was it the coloring? Coloring. Department. That's what I thought because I know also uh, then when uh, Crushian, uh collapsed, they bought their coloring as well, or they uh, got their coloring people. I okay, because I know Disney bought the Crossgen uh, IP, right? And yeah, I know Marvel was not that interested in the Malibu IP because they've really done very little with the Ultraverse since they bought it. Right. But I believe it was the coloring departments because those are the companies that were early on going digital with the uh, the production side of things. Was Men in Black pure Marvel or was it Malibu? That was Malibu. That's what I thought. Matter of wow. fact, I mean that's the thing. Yeah, there's like there's like comic movies that people don't realize, and it, and Men in Black's obviously one of them. Yeah, it might have even gotten published by another pub- publisher before then. I'm thinking Air Cell, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I heard they were actually going to do another remake of uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. 
Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they might want to try and get it right this time. Yeah. That'd be good. That was a disappointment. It was. You, it it was, drove Sean Connery into retirement, man. It, it was fun. I said I'm it, done. It wasn't loyal. You know? No. It, yeah. It was, it was kind of entertaining. It's funny. People who haven't read the book that are friends that like gay culture and stuff are like, oh, you know, it was all right. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, not really. <laughs> it was nothing like the original. No, I, it's I disappointing. I thought it was an okay movie. I'm not going to say it was a great adaptation of the comic. No, I understand so, that. Yeah. No, it was kind of like... Turn of the century steampunk, but a little more technology than steampunk, sort of. I think that's a great way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's probably the first experience I had. I still, I'm trying to figure out where the whole steampunk uh, culture is going. From. Oh, originated from. Because, I mean, it just kind of, to me. You know, their Wikipedia like does say stuff like that in terms yeah. of where, where steampunk came from. And there's I, a documentary about steampunk being shown today. I didn't realize that. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Hey, too bad we're not here in the convention center because we could walk over and watch it after this panel. <laughs> I'd rather oh, be well. Here. I'd rather be here. No, you're a good man. I pre- I'm just screwing with you. <laughs> um, no, I was going to say, you know what's cool too is they have steampunk, but now they have, and I forget what it's called, but it's like, the diesel, it's diesel punk. It's called diesel punk. Diesel and it's punk. basically like... Post World War One, like from the twenties to the jet age, so it's that period. Interesting, which is really yeah. And I'm like, that is very, that's great. I haven't even encountered that. I mean, you know, it's you know basically what film was doing during the thirties and forties, but that's the era that it covers. Wow, I'm gonna have to keep that. Yeah, yeah, that's my fascination. I could appreciate that. No. No, it's, you know, I got to do, honestly, there's a show, it's on Netflix, not to toot my horn, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's called Prophets of Science Fiction. Oh, yeah. I'm on that show, and they, they, do, they did a Jules Verne episode, and I'm on it. Oh, wow. And it, wow. yeah, and it was such, A, it was a privilege being asked to be part of it, because I'm no, I mean, it was literally scholars that study Jules Verne, and, you know, Captain Schmuck over here, you know, so. <laughs> what do you think, John? Well, you know, and, and it was, it was, it was great. And, and I treated it like having a, an exam and really, like, dug back into my Jules Verne. Mm. And he's, a, I mean, no, steampunk and Jules Verne, you can say, is kind of the father of steampunk because taking that technology and the forward thinking he did with the technology that was at hand is mind-blowing. And literally NASA used a lot of his... Strategies and trajectories of space flight, and well, yeah. you know, if they were going to do a shot to the moon, it would have to be in Florida. Right, he was only like 20 miles away from the actual. Uh, Isn't that crazy? He was like the modern age uh, Nostradamus. Yes, yes, like almost 100 years before it happened, and he's like, well, they probably have to do it here, and it would have to be at this angle, and it... that was amazing. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you no, know, and also just an amazing backstory as he got older, and his son kind of co-wrote a few things and oh this is dead stuff no it's not yeah. I mean and there's really you can think of like modern examples of oh yeah you know here's a bunch of well, the stuff Tupac was supposed to release before he died Arthur C. Clarke <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. You know, the, the, yes. his name was on every book that came out even though you know it was done by another author yes like, absolutely Clark featuring so-and-so yep no you're right about that that's true there was one I, I can't remember what it was called but it had something to do with quantum foam and being able to look through uh, like Micro wormholes, and his name was on it, but it didn't have his feel. Panache. Yeah, I know. I agree with you. Clark's an amazing guy too. I think the last book I read that he actually wrote was 3001. You know, and in conversation last night because famous monsters of Filmland, mm-hmm. um, they're they're making the magazine again, and actually they're producing comics as well. And um, 
I had asked the guy, and I mean, I mean to go over to the booth, but I was asking my friend who was pitching stories to them, comic stories, and um, I'm like, do they have access to the backlog of stuff? And I used uh, 3001 as an example with Playboy, because that's one of the questions I asked Mark. And that's something that, you know, Kevin is too busy talking about. Oh, Marvel's cool. And I like Kevin. Don't get me wrong. Kevin's a good guy. He is. He's been very nice to me. But um, I asked him, much like Famous Monsters of Filmland, Playboy, I'm like, God, you guys have had so many, like, serialized books. James Bond was serialized in Playboy. All this interesting fiction. And Mark was telling me, it's kind of, you know, that was before digital. So do we have the right to bring it back and put it on the website? Because, you know, Sports Illustrated does it with their old sports stories and all of that. And I wondered the same thing about like I said, 3001 for Playboy, but also Famous Monsters of Filmland articles and things that, you know, Forey Ackerman did for years. They're going to put that online? Well, they have a new magazine, that, and the guy bought the name, and he literally did business and got all the rights to the IP from Forrest Ackerman before he passed away. What that means, I don't know, because, uh, and i got to go to the booth and find out, and I hope to do a floor interview with the recorder I have, and, uh, and find that information out. <laughs> Oh, hey, man. See, how you doing? Dude, I'm hey. so glad you came. I, yeah, no, no. I'm, Calvin, I'm so glad you I'm came. Here, yeah. I can't thank you enough I'm for coming. Of course, hey, you know, we're, we're out in the boonies here. And yeah, a little so, bit. You know, and, and, and again, everyone's being very sweet for coming. And Greg came. That's wonderful. I was a little, hey. I, was, I mean, I was a little concerned Thanks, where it was, but it's easy. Easy peasy. That's great, guys. Yeah. I feel like George Bailey. Harry, you came. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had died in the war. <laughs> My lips bleeding. Was it easy getting over here? Yeah, it was fine. It was oh, fine. Yeah, hey, yeah, I was worried. I came on 12th Street, and it's like, the library is closed. I'm like, no, it's not. What the hell is going on? It's like, I came over to 11th. That's I'm like, oh, thank God. Well, once you get on top of the footbridge, you see, like, you know, the dome taking off in the, the yeah, outer yeah. space. It looks like it's about to blast well, off. Well, and that's what I was telling it. people, too. So we're <laughs> semi on the record, Greg and uh, Calvin. I mean, I'm going to, like, we'll officially start at noon, but we've been rolling tape. Oh, okay. So I, so, uh, yeah, I don't want you guys to know. By the way, you know it's a real asshole at the con. Let me tell you. <laughs> this guy, forget about it. So how are you guys doing? Is that a good show so far? Yeah, I just got cool. in yesterday. I arrived at, um, I, I flew in and went straight to a Superman panel, which was very well attended and a I lot of fun. I saw you at your did, did you use your cape? I, yeah, I did. I did. I flew right in. And uh, uh, no, it's been great. I I, um, and then I did a couple of signings after that. Exactly, I saw you there. And then I had some Mexican food and went to sleep because I'm on New York time. Mm. I understand. <laughs> no, I'm, well, I'm on Chicago time, so I'm only an hour ahead of you. Um, you know, I talked to the guy, uh, D, uh, Guy uh, Del- Delcourt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I've lost my recorder, and I, and I hope to re- oh. reschedule with David and stuff. But, yeah, I'm interested. Interesting guy. Very yeah. down-to-earth. Uh, not what I sort of expected from a French publisher. I agree. And also, and a fan, and a guy who started off as a fan, and yeah. like, hey, I'm going to start yeah. publishing my own books. But no, I, I think that's interesting. And, you know, one of the things I think in the recent months that is worth talking about. But yeah, I know, like, once we get rolling and stuff, just the perspective on, you know, obviously the last 10 years and the massive changes that have been. Yeah, happening. yeah. And I hear so. him and his wife shut down Anglin on the dance floor every year. That's hilarious. So, yeah. And he apparently likes to party. That's cool. Have you, have you done Anglin? No, I never have. I almost had it. I almost went this year. I'm trying. I'm shooting again for next year. That's cool. We'll see. We'll see. How many have you done? <laughs> any international uh, shows yet, or no? Because you, uh, got, you guys have publishers weekly. You no, such a great you know, job. No, no, no. Covering all. Well, but <laughs> we'll yeah, just but leave cover, it at that. No. Yeah, but you cover the works. So I mean, yeah. You know, well, you we cover it in terms of. Yeah, right? I mean, we cover it in terms of. You know, um, we, we have some correspondence overseas, and we talk to people, but 
they they're not sending me anywhere. I was listening to one of your recent episodes and and your third your third voice and I'm forgetting your name right now. It's you, Heidi. Uh, yeah, and uh, and uh, oh God. Kate Fitzsimmons, our we'll producer. Make, yes, Kate Fitzsimmons. There would be no podcast without Kate. Who went to Japan and was just telling yes, us about yes, the exactly. Japanese. Good point. That was fascinating. Really there's interesting. Our, there's our international correspondent. Yes, yes. No, but that's yeah, really she had a great cool. trip and had some real like you know. Otaku adventures to talk about. Yeah, man. No, that's. Do you guys know what otaku is? It's. Um, and I'll let Calvin explain because he's he's smarter than me. Well, I guess it's just a very you know just. I mean, I, I, I there's more of a, a as I at one point I think I had more of a negative connotation in, in Japan, but an intense fan, a fan and fan culture. It's like okay, because yeah. and then the otaku books are like basically. Kind of fan fiction, illustrate like basically, or, or what? Well, or is it? Or I mean, I think it's everything? more of a of a of a uh, of a mentality and okay. a class of of intense pop culture fans than than necessarily any one genre. Or anything. So it can, it can encompass a lot of genres. Kind of sort of like a fanboy here. Kind of, yeah, sort of, but not yeah. Quite. Except as I understand it, even more intense. But yes, that's the way I would describe it. Yes, as a, a fanboy and fangirl, and it's very, very bright. Well, I know too at the well. stores they were saying alongside the comics they had like self-made comics by fans. Yes, I don't know yes. if they the had Jushinchi a specific. And, uh, is that yes. the name of the? Yes. Is that the yes. genre? Yes, uh, and that, that seems to be the name for it. I mean, I guess du, it would du, be Dushenshi. Dushenshi. I'm, okay. I'm sure I'm mangling the, pro- the pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> we're we are not going to judge. We've done worse with Japanese. Okay, trust us. but uh, but it's a fascinating part of. I guess Japanese fan culture that uh, these fan-made zines, some of which are extremely professionally done, um, and but they mix and match and borrow with copyright. And I guess you've touched on this in that. Did you touch on this in that co- in a comic you did? Oh, on the, the South Vision Line? Machine book. Yeah, what yeah. the uh, you know the the world of copyright that possibly could await us in the future. Right, right. Where yeah. everything you say, uh, you pay a, <laughs> you pay a fee for it. Exactly. But, you, but you hum a song, your your digital devices yeah. will record you humming that song and charge you. Yes, appropriately. You, yes, hilarious. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, That's it was awesome. a really interesting look at you know Speculation, using yeah. fine, once again science fiction to look right. at. How the world is evolving. That thing you're talking about is very interesting, though, because that does occupy a gray area, right? Because they're actually selling those books. Yes. Well, as I understand it, Japanese publishers look the other way. Because, I mean, you have, you go to something like Comic Cat, that, that twice a year massive um, fan festival, sort of like Comic Con. I mean, look, we see Comic Con as a show on steroids, but Comic Cat, from what I can see, is Comic Con on Sarah? I mean, <laughs> it's like it's there's like five or six hundred thousand people that go wow. through this thing, and it's twice a year, and it's full of fans selling, um, you know, copyright compromised right. okay. uh, versions of the most, you know, famous properties. There, it's both an act of love. But I think also the publishers see it as a sort of a farm system for spotting uh, people p- with potential. Talent. Yeah, potential. So they actually look the other way, as long as nothing has really extreme distribution. Right. You know, as long as it's a guy at a, or a girl at a table selling mm-hmm. right. as opposed copies. to another company trying to put it well, out. Yeah. But it's a fascinating aspect of, of fan culture in Japan. That's awesome. Did I you heard have... that uh, Marvel's actually thrown Clark Kent into a lot of their. You know, it's funny. I, yeah. I was reading this week's uh, Brian Hitch JLA and um, or Justice League of America, and Matt. It's clearly Matt Murdock in a quick news flash. And yeah, I remember, was it Walt Simonson? I know through Clark and Lois in uh, Thor. Yeah, a few times. Just, you know, they're not main focus, so they said. Oh yeah. They, 
they, well, it's, they kind of screwed around the whole copyright thing. Well, and that was a kinder, friendlier time. And, like, right. you can get away with I mean, it was a redheaded guy with those Matt Murdock red shades. So it's pretty obvious who it was. Right. Like well, and, I, and for something like that, they're not going to waste their time. But, yeah, I mean, literally, if you got the S... There might be an issue or something. <laughs> Amadeus Cho is not going to be running into uh, Superman right. anytime soon. I'm guessing. Yes, that's, that's I'm guessing. unlikely to happen in the near future. We may as well start because it's 12.01, and I want to thank uh, the, the attendees that did come in. And feel free. I know you guys are in the back, but if you want to come up closer because we'd love to uh, get anyone who has questions, we've got a microphone there and, and make this you know, a, a chance for you guys to ask questions as well. But uh, thank you for coming to the 10th Annual Comic Book All-Stars panel of podcasting. Uh, my name is John Suntress. I host a podcast called Word Balloon. I started in 2005, and I'm very pleased uh, with the panel that we were able to assemble today. And I will let uh, the panelists introduce themselves. Uh, I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor at Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World, uh, and one of the three uh, talking heads on uh, More to Come, the PW Comics World podcast. I'm Kay Callum. I write for Pop Arts Place, and I do a few podcasts with John Mayo, who will give a better introduction. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Mayo of Comic Book Page. I also do some writing for uh, Comic Book Resources on the sales figures. I've been podcasting since 2006. I started out as a guest spot on some other shows and then started the Comic Book Page podcast in 2007. We've been going weekly ever since, sometimes three times a week. We're getting really close to having our 1,000th episode. Wow, nice. God, I'm like under 600 still. And I've been over 10 years. We've gone past 100 hours or 1,000 hours of content. Uh, We do everything. a week. I'm impressed. Well, we always do uh, one a week that's a review show that always has a DC comic, a Marvel comic, and some other comic, unless we need to record early, in which case, whatever we can get preview copies of. Uh, So sometimes Marvel and DC have lost out. We do episodes on the previews of what's coming out so we can support creators we enjoy and stuff with their new works. Um, We've done uh, subscription box lights on things like Loot Crate, the Marvel Collector Core, stuff like that. Uh, Kay has joined us on uh, many reviews of movies and television shows and stuff because, let's face it, in this day and age, uh, comics are not just about the physical comic books. These properties have taken over the mass media. And I like mass media, too, so we're covering all that. I love your Loot Crate uh, episodes, and honestly, hearing you guys talking about that, I, I, honestly, it's cool because it is something that I considered, and it was nice hearing people who have actually bit the bullet and done it, and what kind of stuff you get. The, the origin of that actually goes to uh, Orphan Black. Uh, the uh, comic had sold through the roof. I was tracking the numbers, and I'm like, what's going on with this? I look at the Loot Crate website, because it's like, they've, they've caused this before. Sure enough, it was going to be in there. It looked like and it's like, oh, I've got a couple of days before the deadline for that loot crate. What the heck? I'll order that. We'll do an episode. We'll see what happens. We've gotten really good feedback. It was great. It's, it's fun. It, it's also the easiest episode for me to produce because we sit down. <laughs> we open a box. We, we, we ramble for a bit. We're done. I edit. It's up. I don't have to read anything. I don't have to watch anything. I don't have to crunch any numbers. No, but you give me a pop culture pop quiz that I fail as we go through the box. I've read... Just about everything in the Marvel and DC universes for like 25 years or something. I follow a lot of TV mm. shows. I fail the pop quiz sometimes. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> now, our, our final panelist, I'm, I'm going to introduce and, and let him let him talk because uh, it's uh, a wonderful comic book writer who's, who's done excellent work on his own. Also for uh, DC and Marvel, currently writing action comics 
uh, the powerless Superman right now, or slightly powerful, uh, did wonderful runs on uh, things like Hercules and the Incredible Hulk, the man behind Planet Hulk and World War Hulk, and uh, looking forward to the all-new, all-different Hulk coming in the fall. Yes. Greg Pak, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, thank you, thank you. Uh, no, 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 thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> Smattering for Greg yeah, Pak. Exactly. We like Greg Pak. It's all right. Um, no, I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be here. I actually started in comics around the time you started in podcasting. Uh, it, my first book came out in November 2004. It was a Warlock book for Marvel. Awesome. And uh, I think that my first Comic-Con was... Uh, I think it was the well. It was the first New York Comic Con, which was 2005, oh. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think I it was either five or six. Yeah, when they shut down the room. Yes, yeah. the fire marshals. Yeah, it was yeah. either 2005 or 2006. They, they outlawed backpacks. Proof, you couldn't bring a backpack in because they were so Shut, getting that shutdown was sort of proof of concept for. Yeah. Uh, because for attendees, for attendees, and for the Reed exhibition, who were you know used to doing trade shows and not used to doing oh. consumer shows, and they gave basically gave them too small a space, and we proved it that it was way too small a space. Oh, it was crazy. Yeah, they, I mean, I think the whole Comic Con was in the area where they just do uh, the artist alley now, or is, is that right? It, it was, was all... downstairs in one of those. It's it's hard to describe it now if you unless you have unless you've seen the Javits Center, but it wasn't the main floor. Yeah. And, and it was just a really small area. And uh, it's funny, because Heidi and I actually worked with some of the organizers in the run-up, and we were looking at each other and saying, Not big enough. This yeah. is going to be, uh, hopefully, a mild disaster, not a really horrific disaster. <laughs> uh, and it was somewhere in between a mild and a horrific disaster. Well, I mean, they were thrilled because it was so huge, you know. Yeah, but, it was um, just... Fans were around. But, it, but it was funny because it got bad. They locked down the, the, the what <laughs> yes. was the main floor, and you literally would they would let people in like by twenty. And as soon as twenty people would leave, they'd let twenty people in. Yeah. And it wasn't just attendees. I know Victor Gorlick from Archie Comics. He's like, I'm the president of Archie Comics. I demand to get on that floor. Yeah. And they're like, Hey, the fire marshal. It's uh, sorry, sir. I don't care who the hell you are. And Dan DiDio from DC was waiting. Yeah. Like, Oh, oh wait, I don't care. What the hell? Yeah, I'll yeah. talk to I the fans. Frank Miller couldn't get in the hall. He had to get yeah, to the man. panel. It was. And yeah. then some of us knew that we were stuck in there, so we kept circling the same small area. And it was like a zombie convention. Like, all right, there's DC again. There's Marvel. Yeah. There's <laughs> and there's Brendis. And there's DC and Marvel again. I mean, it was ridiculous, man. Well, Greg, I, I'm curious. Because you did start around the same time that podcasting, you know, podcasting only began really in late 2004. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I know uh, Adam Curry certainly was, you know, they call him the godfather of podcasting in general. Um, but there were only a few shows. I started in May of 2005. Uh, Neil Gorman, Comics Geek Speak, uh, Fanboy Radio was a radio show out of Texas before it yeah. became a podcast. They existed before. But, yeah, what was your first encounter with a podcast? You know, I don't remember, but I know that I, you interviewed me very early on. So did Jimmy Aquino. Uh, Comic News Insider, another 2005 alum. Also, Evie. Um, what was, was I Read Comics? Was that? No, that's Leah Taylor. Uh, it was like ABC's. Uh, I can't remember the name of the. Oh, I, I'm, I'm spacing. You know, and, that's, and really, you know, in the 10 years, when we started yeah. in 06... God, uh, Jimmy Aquino, Comic Geek Speak. So Comic News Insider, Comic Geek Speak. I Fanboy was at that first panel. Chris Marshall uh, was there. Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Uh, Augie DeBleek from CBR, Comic Book Resources, was still doing a Pipeline podcast. Leah Taylor, I Read Comics. That's the ones I remember from yeah. that first panel. So, I mean, I, I, I've done. I've been a guest on many, many. I've been a very grateful guest on many, many podcasts over the years. I, I you <laughs> videoed a podcast on YouTube I, for a while where you're doing a Skype conversations. Uh, a very <laughs> brief podcast. <laughs> How long did you do that for? I, I, I had like three or four episodes. Although I will be, I'll, I'll very people. proudly uh, claim. Uh, 
a little credit for uh, doing a podcast with Kelly Sue DeConnick when she was first coming out with her um, I remember that. Cool. her Captain Marvel. We did a little cool. thing because that, that was also the t- same time uh, Extreme X-Men was starting. And so we both had these uh, books with uh, female leads, and that was felt like a fun thing to talk about and all that. But um, And which were you writing? Was that Storm? or uh... No, no, that's when I was doing Extreme X-Men. Uh, oh, so okay. I, yeah, because that and Captain Marvel launched around the same time. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, it's I, I have a lot of respect for what you guys do because I've, I've tried to do it, and it's... It's not easy. It takes a lot of time. It seems like you know you just sit down and talk, but then just the, the whole mechanics of editing the whole thing and and uh, just and, and and just keeping on a schedule and keeping that thing going. Like you have to. I mean, my impression is that if you really want it to work, you have to make a thousand episodes. Like you're yeah. saying, you have to. Let, it's it's about longevity, right? And you're and, absolutely and right. You're showing up and and showing consistency. And I mean, literally, Johnny Appleseed, one listener at a time. I remember the first time I had over a hundred listeners for a single episode, and I was thrilled yeah. and it was great very early on Mike Raringo I had Jeff Parker on and I really wanted to talk to him about one of his creator owned comics called The Inner Man and three days after I posted the pod I got an email from uh, Mike Raringo out of the blue saying hey I'm a friend of Jeff's I'm having trouble figuring out how to download your show and I'm like Mike would you please come on my show <laughs> and, and, and here's how to do it he came on and really he was such a good guy and, I, and we all miss him uh, those of us who knew him and also his fans and was a great critical ear because I'm like, all right, dude, like, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And because he, he had been on Fanboy Radio a few times, Scott Hines, and also an, a guy who was on that original podcast panel. Uh, I, I really always have to like kind of tip my cap to him because I think in the modern era, uh, kind of starting in 2000 with Fanboy Radio, um, that really inspired me to start doing my podcast. What inspired you guys over at Publishers Weekly? You do an excellent job blogging, but, you know, why yeah, well, adding the dimension know, of podcast? Interesting. Uh, uh, it wasn't me. I'll tell you because I actually was reluctant to do the podcast. Um, I, I wasn't a podcast necessarily fan. My wife listens to podcasts constantly. Uh, really, uh, our producer, Kate, who actually started out, I can't even remember when, a few years ago, as our intern in the comics department. And in, as she grew older and started doing different things, uh, but she kept, and she's also very technically adept, um, and, and, and I'm not necessarily, uh, and Heidi is, Heidi's adept at everything, um, but uh, they, they were really wanted to do it, and I was like, ah, we've got enough work to do, as you mentioned, you know, it's, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and then when actually, and then I think we actually only did it every at the beginning. I think we only did it every two weeks. Yeah, <coughs> excuse yeah. me, <clears throat> bi monthly yeah, or bi weekly. Um, yeah. And then they, and as soon as we started doing it that way, um, they wanted to go weekly, and I, and I was like, well, let's let's we'll hold on there, <laughs> you know, because I have to write about more than comics, and um, but uh, you know, and and also it was interesting. We, uh, our management, we had, we had been, uh, I think our podcast started in 2011. We had just been acquired, uh, PW had been owned for many years by a gigantic global octopus-like company, uh, and they had got tired of us. We were, we were a classic old media with uh, no digital strategy and a lame website and uh, shrinking uh, profit margins, and they were going to sell the company or shut us down. We were acquired, and... It was just a whole new world, and we had a new management. They, you know, they were they knew what we did in comics, but you know, they what, what happens very often is they are not comics readers themselves, mm. so they're always a little dubious of the whole enterprise. You know, I mean, you know, like, why are we doing this? So uh, we didn't have the technology. We really didn't have a podcast unit on our CMS. You know, 
But Kate rigged up this, you know, jerry-rigged, um, glitchy system. Uh, we, we were having problems getting it on iTunes, but, you know, you could go to the website and stream it. And we just did it, and we basically learned how to do the thing by doing it. So uh, I have since changed my mind. <laughs> I guess. Uh, it's still a lot of work because uh, we are weekly now, and we alternate, um, you know, our, and I should say that's Heidi McDonald. Me and Kate the Simmons, um, and, and, and Heidi also being the PW uh, graphic novel reviews editor, in addition to running in our spare time the equivalent of you know the New York Times of comics, the beat. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how she does it, but she, but somehow she does. And uh, so uh, so as we built Stuna, you know, basically learn how to do it. And I mean, I, I've um, I mean, you can listen to. That first one we did, and, sure, and all of and our archives. I think I from the know. beginning. I, I think it's pretty. I mean, we talk about interesting stuff, but I think it's pretty awful. But <laughs> oh no, 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 no! You know, I, I, now let's see the audio, which we all struggle with initially. Yeah. Audio, like we we kind of figure out from a technical standpoint yeah. how to do a better show, mm-hmm. and your audio has since improved. Yes. The content, honestly, and I'm not being nice, from day one, and it's one of the reasons why I was really glad to see you guys doing it, mm-hmm. all of you and women. Uh, was the fact that your perspective? I mean, God, Calvin, you've been covering the beat for since the eighties. <laughs> yes, and, and I'm not to age you or anything like that. But, no, absolutely. But, but no, truly, that's, that's when I started. But that's the great thing, yeah. and you've gained an incredible perspective. John has been doing it for seven years mm-hmm. or eight years now, and I mean that's the thing. And as we do it with the longevity, we gain this kind of perspective. So no, it was really great to hear. And I want to point out everyone's specialties and stuff. John and Kay on on their show, they really crunch. Uh, the numbers, and I know that's always been John Strong suit, and originally would come on shows as a guest. Yeah, but um, so if you really want to get a perspective of you know how books are selling, why books might be canceled and stuff, I, I would point you to John's show in particular, and that's why I was look forward to having him on these discussions. And Greg is pressed for time, and I don't want to. I've got make, a few more. Okay, good, because yeah, you you know you either wave or whatever, yeah, and I'm trying to I'll, clock watch as well. But while you're here. I, want, I still want to get your perspective. You've been doing great mainstream work for DC and Marvel. You've also been doing a lot of creator-owned things, Kickstarter campaigns. In fact, I know you're yeah. about to launch a new Kickstarter yeah, campaign. Yeah, I've got stickers for you, too. So, uh, so oh, that's I'll, awesome. I'll hand those I out want one. Yeah. yeah, very cool. But, yeah, I mean, you know, has, you know, has podcasting helped in a different way that, say, the bloggers oh, yeah. and, the, and the news websites have helped you? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was telling you about this on the phone the other day. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, I had a few different people uh, – Talk about podcasts and talk about. I mean, a few different creators talk about podcasts and how how important they've been. You know, uh, a friend of mine was um, at uh, the New York Special Edition uh, tabling at the New York Spe- a, a comics creator, and he said that um, he had done a podcast. I think he'd done the pan. Um, I can't variant. He'd done the variant uh, podcast. variant edition. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and he said that uh, just a huge number of people came up. And uh, came up to his table and said, "Oh yeah, I, I saw you on the Variant Edition. I heard you on the Variant Edition. You know, I mean, like that. That's podcasts are, are a critical way for folks to, you know, get the word out. Um, and then, and then another thing, I, I've been talking to a bunch of different retailers because I'm coming out with a new creator-owned book. And and if you're doing a creator-owned book, you really need to develop relationships with retailers because retailers are really the, the your customers. That's the real audience. Yes. Oh yeah. Because uh, the retailers are the ones who order the books. You know. So, <laughs> so, so it, it, as an aside, if you want to support a book, the very best thing you can do to support a book is to pre-order it. Uh, go to your retailer, your local retailer, and tell them you want the book before it comes out because then they'll actually buy it. 
from the uh, from the publisher, and then the book can continue to get made, hopefully. <laughs> so, um, but um, but so I've been talking to some retailers, and um, just in passing, one of the retailers. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were just talking about this book I had coming out, and he was like, "Oh yeah, and you got to do. Po- everybody listens to podcasts, so you got to got to be doing those podcasts." Outstanding. Which I what you know, which was uh, I mean. I, I shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was, I mean, that was nice kind of to a hear. pleasant spree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's nice to hear. Larry's Comics, I know, has told me in the past, and he's an East Coast retailer, and he's like, oh, dude, I play your show in the store all the time, which is like, yeah, that's, an, great. Yeah, that's yeah. a high compliment. Yeah. And also kind of makes sense because that's the great thing, mm-hmm. and it's good that it's evolved just beyond print. And, and I appreciate all the video, the video bloggers out there that do it and do it on YouTube and the various platforms as well. But I really, I know myself, always felt dissatisfied with how little space you got in the previous catalog. And to be honest, a lot of other news blogs, and I, and I say that because, again, they, they do great in-depth interviews of Publishers Weekly and at The Beat, but um, you just get only so much from a press release. And I think it is better to hear right from the horse's mouth, tell us about the comic. Tell us what inspired you. What well, made you want to do this? And, you know, and the reach is pretty amazing, too. I mean, we have gotten um, notes we got recently a note from a guy in Sweden, and he just... Isn't that great? Yeah, and I, I'm not sure yes. whether he's an American who's living there. Uh, the you know English was very good, I mean, in, in terms of the writing. But he talked about how much he loved the podcast, that the news that he... You know, he hears news he doesn't necessarily hear everywhere. But, I mean, that's a pretty... Uh, that's pretty great to hear yeah. that, you know, you're getting fans on... Other continents. This is know? like a wedding. Like who who traveled the farthest to you listen know, to yeah. our podcast? Johnny, who who's uh, the furthest uh, that you've got? Uh, I had one from Australia. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nicholas Scott. I mean, it's and it's great. I mean, and I've had several like you know fans tell me as well. But Nicholas Scott, the working artist and stuff, who's about to do a new book with Greg uh, Rucka. And I first knew her because she enjoyed my show in a show called Around Comics that's no longer around and. Um, Blew our minds. And, and also, uh, oh, God, I can't remember the artist's name, but it was B. Claymore's artist on Hawaiian Dick. Was it Nick Darrington, I want to say? Or? Oh, I forget. I can't remember. But anyway. Uh, but, and, you know, uh, Greg, I was really happy to have you and John Colton on oh, yeah. talking about uh, Code Monkey Save World. And John, if you don't know, John's a podcast pioneer. He would do a song a week. Yep. And really, was what kind of science was John's background? Well, he was a computer. He he did computer science, and he was a programmer. Um, so okay. he, uh, but he's a, he's, he he had to sing. That was what was in his heart. Um, and uh, so, but no, he you know he worked. His day job was you know doing computer programming, and um, he. Uh, but at a certain point, he uh, started taking advantage of the magical future world we live in, and started writing songs and posting them on the internet. And uh, yeah, I guess, and I guess technically that was a podcast. Absolutely, when it first started. So. Yeah, it was on iTunes as a podcast yeah. and everything, and you could download it. Right. And and yeah, that's why when when uh, Greg told me about uh, that he wanted to take John's songs and make a graphic novel collection of stories based on the songs and stuff, I'm like, oh, it'd be great to have you and John on if it's okay. And I was thrilled because John turned his hobby and passion into mm-hmm. a living career and he tours and has a huge body of fans yep. and a lot of downloads each week and he's no he's a very successful mm-hmm. internet sensation so yes. it's internet, not internet just superstar musician jonathan yeah. colton it's, to- it's totally true <laughs> you know did you guys if you saw glee one of the sad notes of john colton's thing uh he did a very funny arrangement of baby got back that was very mellow and glee used it and used his arrangement just kind of appropriated it which was kind of lousy and but you know uh, you know again well, he even he even changed the lyrics to refer to himself as Johnny C and they they used those lyrics that he changed in their version oh, God. <laughs> it was like wow. obviously came directly from yeah, yeah. and but, Fox yeah. is like oh well try and sue us <laughs> yeah. and it's like yeah never mind 
what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I you know, uh, Greg, you want to? Did you want to mention any of uh, the stuff that you got coming up? Oh yeah, sure. Well, I also want to just say two things Please. about podcasting. That I mean, one of the things that I've really appreciated is that. Um, when you're coming out, I mean, it doesn't matter what level you work at in comics. You you got to hustle. You know what I mean? You got to get out there. You got to get people to pay attention to your books. The you know like the biggest companies don't have much marketing dollars. You know what I mean? And and so if you want your book to sell, you got to help sell it. Uh, and um, and so uh, being able to talk to folks like you guys, you know what I mean, who are doing it, you know, who are just as passionate and out there hustling yourselves. But but that's the fact that there are people out there who have created a space you know to talk about this stuff is amazing you know what i mean just to have the chance to to uh to to talk with like-minded people and get get the word out is uh, tremendous um and i had one other sort of uh big thought about podcasting that just escaped me well if you, if you want i'll let you think for a moment because i was going to say in these last 10 years it's been very interesting because when we started it was very easy to go up to jeff john's and say, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And he was excited to do it because there was this new thing. And he was very appreciative. As the companies have gotten bigger and become a bigger and a more important part of their conglomerate, the level of access has diminished. I have to say, in fairness, not the case at Marvel. Marvel has been incredibly kind to me over the years. And I pretty much can talk to anybody I want to. And that's nice. And it's based, I think, on the fact that after doing it for 10 years, they know that it's not going to be a gotcha interview or anything like that, and that it's a place to truly talk about the book in, in a positive way and get people excited about it because we are fans and we like the work. If we didn't like it, we wouldn't talk to those people. Calvin, I know you came from, a, a you know obviously, the background of Publishers Weekly, and I don't know if that access has diminished as well for you, but I, know I wanted to ask John as well. So, uh, You know, Marvel's always a little odd sometimes really? to deal with. Uh, but I, I can't say. I mean, we alternate. I guess we alternate uh, our talking heads with uh, some sort of interview. I mean, being in New York, uh, also once again, being around Heidi McDonald, who knows everybody. True. It's not. I haven't really found it um, that big a problem to, to. Now, my focus tends to be not the non superhero. You know, indie comics publishing right. uh, and the like. And they welcome obviously the attention. A- and the absolutely. Access. Yeah. Uh, and and because since we are even living in a world, I mean, we're Publishers Weekly. Our, our focus is the book trade. Uh, now we certainly do look at the comic shop market. They're very important to us too. We've had to, uh, and we also see our, our our role as sort of translating the world of the comics industry into uh, a version that book trade people can understand. Absolutely, because they, you know, it, the comics industry does things in its own way, and very often they're very different from. How the general book trade works. Certainly, uh, certainly the direct market. You know, nobody quite understands non-returnable stuff. For instance, yeah. that really sort of makes hit, hit scratches among editors. But I, we, I have access to a lot of. You know, I'm, I'm known actually for writing about comics in the book trade. Many of the editors who are working or are doing um, comics actually uh, were, very, were very thankful to Publishers Weekly for actually giving them cover at a time when their uh, their heads of their houses didn't really understand it. So I, I, we have we have pretty good access. We know people. Uh, most of our interviews actually are done at shows because that's in fact that's what we're doing now. Sure, we're, we're we're getting short interviews with people all over the. Continent. You've been posting them all week too. Haven't we you? post them all. We're gonna. I, as I said, I was uh, interviewing the Batgirl crew just before I got here. So uh, you know, uh, Cameron Stewart and uh, Brendan uh, uh, Fletcher, Fletcher, very, very and Bab Star. Brendan is hilarious. Yeah. Oh Brendan yes. Yes. Just... Yeah. Yeah. And they were all really yeah. great. And uh, so. 
I can't say that it's a problem. Uh, we we talked about it. Now, Marvel is always interesting. I mean, D, it's interesting. DC is changing a little bit these days, I think. Uh, Opening this, up or getting tougher? I think it's tougher. To me, I they're more so, like so. Marvel now. I mean, I used to... But I think a lot of that is due. they moved to the West Coast. A lot of the people that I knew... I mean, when I started writing about comics, the DC people there, I mean, um, uh, you know, Paul Levitz was still running. Sure. And they were very anxious and very excited that PW was paying attention to them. They were seeing that the book trade was going to become more and more important to comics. I thought they were pretty visionary. But, you know, it's changed there now, and it's... If you can believe so, it's to me it's more corporate, even though they were always a oh, giant no, corporation. I, I agreed, absolutely. It's way more corporate. Oh yeah. Now for this, you know, I didn't. Now, now I've had some new contacts. I did. I, you know, we haven't had big problems. I've talked to people today, and you know, so you never know. But yeah, I, I would say I, I can't say we have a problem, and interviews are becoming more and more important to us. So. Very cool, yeah. and Greg, I know I know you're you're getting ready to go. So I, I don't know if your thought occurred to you as you're signing. Uh, yeah, you know, did send some stuff out. Um, and my thought was that people um, learn in different ways. People acquire information in different ways, right? Absolutely. Uh, some people need visual aids to learn. You know, this is just an educational reality. And uh, some people totally learn just through di- you know through diagrams. Some people learn through text. Some people have to hear it. And and the lo- the great thing about podcasting is that. It allows you to reach people, a whole other group of people. You know, some people are only going to, some people are going to listen to podcasts while they're driving to work and coming back home. Absolutely. They're not going to sit down and read something on a website. You know what I mean? And if all you're doing is, you know, doing print interviews, you're never going to reach those folks. So so I I love the fact that there are a a wide variety of places to reach people and the podcasts are one of them. Um, Just a quick seg, I'm doing... uh, the two projects I'd, I'd love to plug today. Uh, one is Kingsway West. It is a, a, a new book coming out through Dark Horse in the fall, and it's about a Chinese gunslinger searching from his, for his wife in an Old West overrun with magic. Um, and you can actually pre-order it today at kingswaywest.com. And these are nifty uh, little mini posters, which I'm going to leave here for you. So feel free to come up and grab Oh, fantastic. And cool. I, I just signed some, too. And then the other, uh, the other nifty thing is a project called ABC Disgusting, which is an alphabet book about disgusting things. Um, because kids love disgusting things and anything to get kids to read, right? Um, it's uh, drawn by Takeshi Miyazawa and, uh, and, and by the rest of the art team uh, behind both Code Monkey Save World and The Princess Who Saved Herself, which were the two Jonathan Colton projects that I w- worked on previously. It's up on Kickstarter right now, so uh, feel free to check it out at abcdisgusting.com. And we have some disgusting stickers featuring a farting Zorilla here for you. So, uh, and a Zorilla is like a skunk-like animal that, uh, whose name conveniently starts with a Z, is very helpful when you're doing an alphabet book. Um, so I've got some of these stickers up here for you, too. I'm going to probably slip away uh, quietly in, in the next no. couple of minutes, but thank you so much for having me. Indeed, and no, truly, thanks, thanks yeah, for making time for us you. today. And thank you for being accessible uh, to us and to our podcast as well, because honestly, um, you're, a, you're a great voice in comics, and I'm glad that you've found an audience uh, of readers, and, and we're happy to well, help uh, spread the word. And, you know, again, uh, from a mainstream standpoint, too, uh, Greg is coming back to uh, the Incredible Hulk. I don't know. Is it called All New, All Different Hulk? What's no, it called? it's called the Totally Awesome Hulk. Oh, there you go. Uh, so, so like every, every time, we mention, like, every time we mention the book, it sounds like we're quoting a review. There's kind of a clue as to perhaps like the, the new identity for the Hulk book, Super yeah, Wars. Yeah, it, does, it does involve a totally new Hulk, uh, who is indeed going to be totally awesome. It's, uh, it's not Bruce Banner as the Hulk. It's somebody else. Uh, there will be a whole mystery about um, what, what is up with Banner. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's drawn by the great Frank Cho, 
who's oh, somebody great. I wanted to work with yeah. for years. Fantastic. He's got Terrific just a tremendous, uh, yeah, sure. tremendous line art, tremendous action, and, and just uh, really great character work. He's, uh, he's and he's eaten it up. Um, and the colors are by uh, uh, um, Obak. I just I believe I just spaced on her first name. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm, we're all spacing on names. Yeah, and, and I always feel bad because the colorists are the ones that I always forget. Well, she's amazing. And she's amazing. So uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as soon as I walk off stage, I'm gonna remember it. But, so um, you could shout it at the end of the hall if you want <laughs> but, to yes. remember as you're walking out. But, but Ms. Obak is amazing, and I've been seeing pages, and uh, they may. I don't know whether or not we're gonna tease them. I'm gonna be on the. On on uh, the um, uh, Sonia Overback, Sonia. Oh, mm. oh yeah. Sonia. Yeah, I, was, okay. I had Sophia in my head. I knew that was wrong. Okay, Sonia. Um, so, uh, uh, but I'm going to be on the Cup of Joe panel. In, oh, great. in a couple hours, and I don't know. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll show something there. We'll see. Excellent. Um, but, and I know we're gonna we're gonna have a longer word balloon uh, coming up in the weeks ahead, and Greg will uh, you know be able to relax and, and talk to us more. Right. And also, I just want to acknowledge on action right now because. I was skeptical, and I mean, Greg, even before this current status quo of Superman, was writing an excellent Superman, and I mm-hmm. do mean that. But um, right out of the gate, uh, post-convergence, a very intriguing level of where Superman is, right, and yeah. a lot of fun seeing this kind of action comics number one leaping over buildings and kind of strong, but certainly <laughs> yeah. not the powerhouse mm-hmm. he used to be, and Superman dealing with that, getting inside of his head. And also the reaction from Metropolis. If you are not reading, the first two issues of Greg's run, post-convergence, are available now. Thanks so much. Yeah, that's Action 41 and 42, co-written with the great Aaron Cooter, who is also the artist on the book. And it's just tremendous working with him. But, uh, but yeah, please do check it out. And thanks, thank you for, thanks again for having me, everybody. Thanks for coming, man. Truly, really appreciate it. Greg Pack, everybody. Fantastic. And Johnny, I wanted to ask you, yeah, as far as, uh, you know, access and everything. I mean, you don't do as many interviews as, as Calvin and I do. But... I, I leave that to you guys. You do it okay. much better than I do. And the scheduling for me is always a little bit of a problem. On sure. That. I've got the day job, all that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for the access, uh, for me, it comes down to review copies and stuff. Okay. Normally what I review, I do it a week and a half after the book is out. So you guys have had a chance to read it and I'm not spoiling stuff. Not spoiling things. That's, that's big to me. You know, I think it's only fair to creators like Greg Pack and stuff to let them tell the story and let you experience the story as they're telling it, not just how I'm doing it. But I recently had to uh, record a bunch of those review episodes early because I was going on a trip, going to be off, off the Internet for a while. So I needed review copies. So I sent out emails to a bunch of companies. Uh, Marvel uh, was very prompt in saying, no, sorry, not going to do that. And it's like, hey, that's their choice. That's unfortunate. Uh, DC, I think I caught them at a bad time because of the move to Burbank. They forwarded it to one group. It just didn't happen. Okay, fine. That happens. These are big companies. I'm just a small podcast. I get that. Uh, but there were some other uh, publishers. Valiant was very quick to, here's what we've got, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Uh, Dark Horse, uh, Aub does a great job with Aub getting driver, stuff yeah. out. Yeah, I didn't yeah, even no, need to email him because he already was giving stuff out enough ahead of time. I was able to review a Dark Horse book every week. Boom's good at that. Boom, excellent uh, image with their press uh, FTP yes. site. Oh, yeah. They're a little slower these days getting them up there. Um, I had to record the episode that goes up Monday, uh, this coming Monday, before I left uh, to come here for San Diego. And it was like the day before the books were released that they got up. Okay. So there are a few things there where I think there's some room for improvement, but they're at least trying. They're reaching out to the podcast. They're, they're doing what they can. Excellent. You know, and uh, you know, with, we've got plenty of time, and we're going to continue the conversation. But if you guys do have questions, we do have a microphone, and would love to hear any thoughts you have. And and really, uh, podcast. Any podcasters in the audience? 
There are not just listeners. Okay. Do, do people listen, uh, you know, any uh, listeners of podcasts or getting out of the sun? There you go. What kind of what podcasts do you listen to? It's all valid. <laughs> Which one? And nobody said anything. All right, good. I was just listening to myself, obviously, breathe. That's okay, though. That's all good. No, I hope, and we'll, we'll continue our conversation. And again, we've, we've got the mic there, so if you guys want to yeah. join the conversation. I'm... Absolutely, yeah. If you, if you guys want to jump in. Two guys are like, you go. No, you go. No, I understand that. No, you know, um, and, and really, I, I want to ask um, you guys as well, um, and women, and Kay, uh, you guys and Kay, uh, in terms of, you know, the changing demographics in the market and stuff and the impact it's having, um, I was at a good Women in Geek Business panel last night, and they were very quick to point out, you know, we've always been reading, and Kay, I will, I, I will say that you're probably one of those people as well, so go, yeah, we're not, we didn't just come to the party, we've been here from day one, but the great thing is, with social media, they have a much louder voice now, and literally can tell the publisher, hey, you're doing it wrong, stop yeah. doing it, and we've literally seen content change in a way that I can't think of very many other mediums. You know, we certainly can't yell at our TVs and say, no, CSI, do it this way, you know, or or various shows or whatever and movies and things like that. So it's interesting as comics grows that it is still this very much fan level uh, medium that really readership can make a serious impact and difference. But I think that's one of the impacts the comic industry is having on other industries is we're starting to see that blurring of, of the fan culture, the fan creation stuff going into movies, into television with all the crowdsourced stuff. I mean, all the panels that were in this room here at the Central Library yesterday were all about web series. And many of them have actors from Star Trek, Babylon 5, big sure. people. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see the lines really blur in a very interesting way where the fans not only can have that kind of communication and feedback towards the comic companies, but now towards the types of movies and television shows and web series that get developed. Yeah, they're content creators as well as the audience. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, it... I agree with you. I mean, this is pretty clear. I mean, you look at what's happening on creative teams. Uh, I was at the I covered the Eisners last night, and you know, my story today. I called it. You know, it's, talk about the Eisners because I, 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 I wasn't there, was, but I heard I said, the was la- I said it was ladies' night at, at the, the Eisners. I mean, uh, you know, Jillian and Mariko Tamaki won the, uh, the as I interpreted the best book of the year. Essentially, I mean, they won the last award is given out, which is the best new graphic novel of the year. Uh, the Lumberjanes creators, Noel Stevenson and mm-hmm. the editor, Shannon Waters, they, they won. Uh, Raina Telgemeier won, I think, her third Eisner. I think she won in 2005 and 2011. Uh, she won a uh, Best Writer Artist. Um, El Defo, and I can't remember El the name. El Defo, Cece Bell, yeah, uh, Abram Comics be, Art. Be my buddies, Art and Franco, but it's cool, and, and she's got a wonderful story, so I'm very happy you know, for her. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, mean I, I do think in, in the comics, uh, uh, some of the discussion around uh, diversity and certainly for gender was necessarily aimed at the at the, the superhero genre. Uh, perhaps more than alternative comics, where there has certainly been a lot of, of women, but the, it's it's really a new day now. And I think more importantly, as we see the demographics of shows like Comic Con changing, yeah, uh, it's become more and more evident that you know things have to change. That there's a yeah. new voices to be listened to, and also let's be for real, money to be made. Exactly. If oh, you're yeah. you publishing, in the end of the day, they're here to publish what people want to read. Well, opportunity. I mean, that's the great thing at this Women in uh, Geek Business panel last night. I'm like, this is great because they were frustrated that Diamond doesn't, for instance, carry uh, women's shirts, okay? that 
you know, really are cut for women. Yeah. Yeah. And and especially uh, bigger, bigger sized women and stuff. And they're like, well, Diamond's like, there's the numbers aren't there. And I can appreciate that frustration. But their mistake is a huge opportunity for a lot of other people to make a lot of money. But the numbers are all there. The numbers are going to be there if they never sell the stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I've been coming to Comic-Con every year. Well, not to give my For quite some time. Just leave it at that. Since last century. (laughs) And uh, it took me... Yeah, it took me 10 years to get certain people at certain booths to actually have a conversation with me and not just the man I was standing by. And I would come sometimes with John, sometimes with a friend from high school or from college, and they assumed I was just the girlfriend of whoever I was standing next to, so I must not be interested (laughs) in whatever property was there. But I I think we've hit the point where the demographics for comics have changed to be pretty much everybody in a very literal sense. I mean, you look at 10 years ago when the podcasting stuff started – it's like, hey, you know, we've got Smallville on the air. That's cool. But, you know, can we really expect much more? Right now, DC alone has seven shows that are going to be on the next season. Right. That's one for every day of the week. I don't know if they're going to space them out that way. I kind of hope they do. Well, just... I know they're, like, at least Monday through Wednesday, obviously, mm-hmm. is pretty covered. And that's just one company. But you've got uh, uh, the Marvel movies, the TV shows, mm-hmm. all the stuff. It's Netflix. Netflix mm-hmm. with the, the Daredevil stuff. The... The stuff that used to be comic culture is now mainstream. There is something for everybody in this city, in this country, to find at Comic-Con if, if they come look. And if you can't find something you're interested there, take another lap, look a little harder, because it's there. It may be a little harder. also been interesting, I mean, just listen to Greg Puck. I mean, we're living in a, a, a – the publishing – Industry has is being tremendous, being transformed. Indeed. I mean, he he's got one foot in traditional conventioning, conventional publishing, DC and but he's also doing all kinds of other deals in between, from creator-owned deals to his own self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the whole notion of self-publishing has been transformed. I write about it every day in on, in, in the prose book Absolutely, industry, man. and it's also happening in comics. Uh, so we've reached a point where, okay, uh, you don't want to publish my book for whatever arbitrary reason. I will. We've got a perfect. We'll see whether anybody wants it because I can put it out myself and I can reach a global audience. Indeed, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that is changing because publishers are also, as we end of the day, publishers are being held. Even though they, they many in the traditional book publishing industry, they sort of squeal about it and. They're being helped by this new culture of self-publishing because they're getting products that have been customer ch- uh, tested. People can come to them and say, you know, I sold three, four, five thousand copies of my book by myself. Yes. And so what can you do for me? Exactly. Well, I've got a following. I, there's people that want this book. You know, you've got a global distribution network. What can you do for me? And publishers are seeing this and taking people on. And so. that literally has changed my line of questioning when I both speak to sure. creators and publishers because it is to the creator, why are you doing this book with Publisher X when you can do it by yourself? And the same with talking to Publisher X and saying, yeah. what do you have to offer to this person that they can't do themselves? Because, and in fact, yeah. there was a recent kind of cry for help that Kaidi covered on the beat, that page rates are lower yes, and things. Yes, But there was a response from another yeah, creator. Yeah, we did, and we did talk about it. Actually, we did a podcast about that yeah, as well. Please, no, yes. yeah, and, and, yeah. You know, I'm, sure, I'm sure, Calvin, you'll be able to explain that, it better. Well, just that there, you know, that, there, you know uh, well, this is, this is uh, the, the response. Now, people hear it, and then they, they respond in turn, you know, and that's the other thing. I mean, uh, probably that's one of the greatest things the Internet has brought to, to fandom is that it's brought this, this mass of, of, of 
of passionate people together, and you and people. I mean, obviously, people used to always send sales snail mail to each other and to other artists. But now, you know, people can tap into, it, and certainly with social media, it's gotten even more so. So, we, you know, I think as the response to that um, that blog post was really that. Well, it depends on what part of the industry you're talking about. If you're doing your own books, if you're doing trade paperbacks, if you're doing this, then you, you might have a different return on your investment. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's really an exciting time in publishing right now. Uh, and I think both for the conventional industry, which has had to kind of change a lot of practices that, frankly, were, were hurting them by certainly in comics ignoring one half of the population. How is that good business sense? Um, but also, it's empowered artists. Artists have more options than ever before. And the, you know, the argument is still going on. Oh, you know, if you self-publish, you got to do a lot of work. Well, if you conventionally publish, as Pac says, you got to do a lot of work too. You're yeah. the best person. Mm-hmm. The, the artist is the best person, really, to promote your work. No question. Well, and hopefully, you can do it in partnership with a publisher or do it yourself. Well, in the do it yourself, I think the private eye that Brian K. Vaughan yeah. and Marcos Martin did. Perfect example. Excellent example of this. Yeah. They did it digitally, they put it up on their own website mm-hmm. as a pay as much as you like uh, option, including free. Including free. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll freely yeah. admit, I did that. And I read their book at that. least two or three times. It was an amazing yeah. book. They're doing and, and also from a, uh, IDW, a good, and a good and a good financial success for them, and, oh, the, yeah. and then subsequently the deal and with a IDW. Eisner nomination. <laughs> as exactly. Well. So you, you know. know, one thing that came out, DC had a, a creator summit um, while convergence was going on as they moved the offices to Burbank, and the scuttlebutt I heard from creators in background was that the word from DC was, "Don't think of Marvel as our competition. Our competition is Image." both from a business standpoint and also a creative standpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting. And I do think it's reflected in a lot of the choices that they made uh, in some of the off-center books that they're currently doing, Batmite, Bizarro, you know, to name two immediately. Um, And and I think that's interesting. And I wonder, um, John, as you crunch the numbers, we keep hearing that images, obviously, their numbers are rising. I think a lot of of the... Newer uh, readership is is coming in wanting this creator owned stuff could care less about superhero stuff. Oh yeah. So yeah, uh, the three of you. I don't know what kind of impact you've seen. Oh, uh, you know, you know yeah, cool, cool. I've got some co-hosts that are really big on image and stuff. Uh, the main guy I do the reviews with, Drew, is, is just a big image fan. And from a number of, standpoint, though, I'm always from a, like, yeah, what you've been. They're, they're definitely climbing up there. They've got. Uh, it used to be that it was image. Okay, you're looking at the Walking Dead numbers, and that accounts for most of it. That's not the case anymore. Uh, because they've got at least a half dozen new number ones coming out every month. Sure. There are the occasional things that take a while to get to that number two, but in many cases, they're damn well worth the wait. I mean, non-player took four years. It was an amazing second issue. That's kind of an exception, though, and what I like is they've all adopted this rhythm of let's make sure we get five issues to satisfy the retailers and customers, let's take a trade, and if it takes a month or two to get back to the book, so be it. Or, and the retailers are cool with that. The fandom is cool mm-hmm. with that. Saga is a great example of that. They do an arc. They take a little break to, to get back. They do an arc. And those things come out on time. I mean, mm-hmm. there are occasional things that have delays. Pretty deadly. Kelly Sudaconic mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, Emma Rios. And I know Emma's doing other books. And then they're coming back to it later this year. You know what? I, what I hear, we do an annual survey. It's not a scientific survey. We talk to anywhere from 10 to 15 Retailers in different parts of the country. We just want to get, uh, uh, you know, a face-to-face, so to speak, uh, uh, response about the, the, you know, the trends we may hear about. And what we hear from retailers in our survey is it's one of the time where we really try to talk to direct market retailers as well as general bookstore owners. 
is that effectively they say it's the big three now. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, this isn't necessarily talking about market share and all the rest. This is about what their fans want when they walk into their stores and what the kind of books that they're talking about. And in some stores, the big two includes a, Image and one either Marvel or DC drops, one of the big drops two. off. I yeah. would say if I had to pick which of the big two, it would be Marvel, then Image, then DC. And I'm not talking market mm-hmm. share because DC is still way outselling yeah, right. Image. Yeah. But Image has a better mind share. Yes, They're absolutely. doing more interesting stuff uh, because it's creator-owned. The creators are more passionate about that stuff. Absolutely. Well, you and certainly, another, yeah, okay. the DC, and I was just going to say, yeah, the DC right. product that they've introduced now, post-convergence, that literally has just started in June, is reflecting that, okay, we do have to change our thinking. We do have to cater more to this creator-owned audience. What were you going to say? Uh, the impact of digital... Uh, cannot be discounted. This is a, 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 a channel that uh, at one point a retailer thought was going to destroy them. Mm-hmm. But it is actually sending people in the stores. It's not Absolutely. cannibalizing print. It's, it's, they're acting, it's acting as samplers. People are going, are reading stuff on, on very often comiXology, and they are going in the stores and buying them and buying asking the for cover. more like it. Uh, so digital has turned out to be a really great way to basically reach new readers. And that's another thing that we're talking about. Back to the demographics, uh, the, uh, the, the bigger impact of gender, uh, different tastes of all kind. There's more ways for fans to sample work, to get work in front of more people. Uh, and it's changing, it's changing the world for the better. Well, and not just getting new readers, keeping existing readers. Absolutely. We had somebody who, before we started the panel who was talking about they could only keep so many physical copies just because, yeah. you know, they're, I'm getting to the point where there are space limitations. You know, and if digital can keep people reading, even if they're not getting the print stuff, that's, that's great. Well, and I'm always curious, and it was interesting to hear that you're doing this kind of cross-section survey about retailers because we're, John and Kay live in Austin. You're in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm in Chicago. They're cosmopolitan enough that we have stores – that do welcome those. And I truly do ask people from smaller populated areas in the country, what is your re- local retail? Like how much do the, of the creator-owned stuff do they put in there? Because I do know from being a fly on the wall at Diamond Retailer Summits that there still are pockets of stores that pretty much just you know, do superheroes and that's it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, it's based on – it's that thin margin of succeeding or failing in retail to begin with. If, if you look so. at the premier publishers, uh, Marvel, DC, Image, uh, Dark Horse, and IDW, they typically account for 93% of the total unit sales for the top 300 comics. So that means everybody in the back half is really just selling a, a fraction of that or falling below the, the radar of the top 300, it's just not profitable for a store to take a risk on that. And it's a yeah. shame. Well, but again, because of these other avenues and stuff, they can, uh, you know, through digital and stuff, they can make enough. I mean, yep. uh, the, I know the creator-owned uh, Scott Snyder made that point very clear that he makes more money doing witches with Image than he does writing Batman. Mm-hmm. And that su- might be surprising. But again, and some of these books that maybe wouldn't get greenlit from a publisher, if they do self-publish... Much like our own podcasting and stuff, we can gather enough of an audience mm-hmm. coming from broadcasting to do the type of show that I do. I, you know, they say thank you and there's the door. But I do have a significant thousand, uh, audience in the thousands globally that it does make an impact. It does make a difference. And luckily, creators are willing to come back and talk to me. And the same obviously goes for their product and trying to sell it. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much Witches is selling through the Diamond stuff off the top of my head. But I know Batman has been doing 115000 plus for the entire time of the new 52. So if he's making more at Image 
with, with witches and stuff than at Batman, which is typically the top-selling ongoing book, that says something right there about where creators should be spending their time. And then you have the phenomenon of crowdfunding. Yeah, yeah you, I wanted Greg to... Got a, if you've got a, a profile, if you've got a career going, a legacy, um, if you've got a, a, an online presence that's significant, it's pretty amazing what Kickstarter is doing all across publishing. Indeed, mm-hmm. and not just Kickstarter, because yeah, I know yeah. people who have failed on Kickstarter and have gone to GoFundMe or Indiegogo. Mm-hmm. Indiegogo. Yeah. And it's good because... Yeah, I mean, no, get the money that you can if you did, you know, because some some still do that pie in the sky number of I need, you know, a high five or a mid five figure sum to make my book. And it's like, all right, good luck. And you got a guy like Jimmy Palmiotti that has it down literally to a science. Yeah, absolutely. Back to the diamond numbers. Bob Wayne stepped down this year from D.C. or or late last year, I know, and didn't make the move to Burbank. And it's funny, he was handing cards out uh, at the con so far. And he says he'll be available in November. And he's a guy that I would really like to kind of help me crack the code in terms of, I understand, the, the diamond numbers are estimates. They're the re, what the well, retailers buy. And I know, John, this is something you study all the time. Technically, they're not estimates. They are an indexed, ranked list of what was invoiced to, to retailers. So Batman's used, that's 100%. So if something sells a 50 index rank, that means it sold half of whatever Batman did. So really, it's just algebra at that point. You know, solve for X, you can unlock the list. Uh, but <laughs> yes, if you were good at algebra. But go on. <laughs> yeah, forget about some it. Of us, some of Jim? us, who are like reading had a comic book inside of that, that yeah, man. mathematics text. Sleeping. But <laughs> that aside, that aside. Uh, but what is most understood about it is it's only what Diamond is selling to the retailers. It's not what retailers yes. are selling to, to readers. This is a, a B to B to C, a business to business mm-hmm. to consumer business. And publishers need to sell to that retailer's uh, base. That's their their business uh, customers. They need to, in turn, sell to the, the, the readers like us. And it's it's a tough chain. But it's also not accounting for any of the sales happening in that huge convention center behind True. us. Yeah, right. You know. Right, or any, or right. you know, a lot of them are convention warriors. And I know God, Art and Franco. I did their spotlight panel on Thursday, mm-hmm. and they said for years we're selling more comics hand to hand at cons. And sometimes Diamond was, you know, Absolutely. giving them grief about, well, you don't sell enough to be in our book. Our and, and also, uh, you know, uh, places like Neil Nielsen Bookscan, where you you hear more and more quoted for for book sales in the book trade, but they don't count library sales, for instance. Wow. Okay. So Their uh, point can, of sale system for like Barnes and Noble and Mo, like seventy percent of the retailers. Did, yeah. Well, you know the numbers. Box. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, they say eighty percent. You know. Uh, we're a little dubious. We in the past we have we I think we've raised our number now. We used to say seventy percent, um, but I mean it's a, it's a, it's a useful number, but it's not everything. And, and I, very often, <clears throat> I remember years ago uh, when Gene uh, Yang's American Born Chinese came out, and the numbers on I, I would talk to the publisher, and he would just say, you know, the numbers were just going on up and up and up. You look on Bookscan, and you know it was like five thousand copies, and. You know, and it had won the Pritzker. It had won all of these alien literary awards. awards yeah, every yeah. in a tour where every library in the world was ordered. It's, there's no way that the Nielsen numbers were correct. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned libraries because yes, you're right. I mean, this impact yeah. is obviously tangible. And there, I know Derek. Is it Derek Taylor that works it? No, it's uh, Daryl. Uh, Daryl Royal. Yes, actually, he, one of his co-hosts is the librarian. Oh, okay. I thought it was uh, Daryl that actually worked at the library, but no, go ahead. no. Uh, but no, it's like that is an area that I would think you know is significant and needs to be kind of reported more in what mm-hmm. kind of impact it's having. And by the way, as we sit in a library, yeah. if you you know, because there's a lot of college readers that hey man, I can't afford comics, go to your library. 
because that's the good news. I mean, Absolutely. they are supporting comics in such a positive way, and it is a wonderful chance for you to really borrow and, and, and enjoy the, the culture as much, you know, when you can't afford to. Yeah, if, if you're a local person here in the room, I mean, check out the library behind us. We're in the auditorium. Oh, yeah. The main thing, it's, it's an amazing library. You can go across the street to the convention center. Also get a library card there if you need. Libraries are, again, just such an outreach program. Uh, as is digital, as is, yeah. you know, I mean, there's so many ways to, to get involved with the comic stuff these New, days. Uh, I, I did some reporting on this just, just before uh, Comic-Con. Hoopla. Uh, yes, I'm glad you mentioned Hoopla. Go Hoopla, on. Hoopla, which is a, a long, uh, you know, a vendor to libraries, uh, content to libraries for, for years, I think about 25 or 30 years. Um, libraries are, uh, have been in a bit of a conflict with both traditional book publishers uh, and, and some comics publishers over l- lending you know, e-version, digital versions of, mm. of, of titles. But more and more now, you know, the, the uh, librarians are, uh, are convincing them that, look, once again, we're bringing you new customers. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like in the, we're not undercutting sales. We're actually bringing you more sales. And in addition, they're looking for ways to lend digitally. And there's been some, some efforts to provide things that haven't really worked. But Hoopla looks very interesting. They have a new app out. They uh, basically, if you have a li- if you have a library card, a public library card, you have access to you get an app that basically gives you access to thousands of comics, frontless uh, stuff, movies and there's too, more all the time. Yeah, video too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's all that. kinds of content, but there's, they've just added comics. Hoopla just added comics, and they just signed a deal, so they've got DC, and they are going to be. And I, I was told I could say this: they are going to be um, adding Image Comics. Oh, how, I wonder how recent from the time of release to being on there. I'm not sure that. I can't tell you exactly. Uh, there is some front list, but I don't know how what their determination okay. I, I is. I need to check list. that out. Uh, right. But there's certainly a lot of backlist. There's also a Netflix I, model for comics that has just appeared this year, and I and I'm forgetting well, the name. Well, that's essentially. I mean, in some ways, what you're seeing with Hoopla, uh, that is that but, is it. But, but a script, for instance, script, thank script, you. Uh, yes. Uh, Script is one of the uh, e- e-book subscriptions. How are they doing, services. man? Because uh, I had them on at the beginning of the year as well, and uh, it's six you know, months in. They're doing great as far as delivering comics. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether they're actually making any money and whether they can, can – everybody's kind of wondering what their um, their business model actually is. And I'm, I'm actually walking, trying to get from one panel to another, and this guy basically tackles me. It's a company called Comics Blitz. They are also – and e- e-comics subscription service. So like they're Netflix. They're beta right now, yes. Okay, so they are, yeah. They are, they're exactly, they're in they, Subscription they're beta. and then read as um, much as you want. I don't think they have a table here, but there's a guy walking around. They're going to be launching uh, at, uh, I think, the, the, the Boston uh, Festival that's coming up in a month or two. Excellent. Well, so, yeah. Well, it, we look forward to that, and I, and I intend to have uh, one-on-one conversations on my podcast with our, our panelists uh, thank you very much for listening. I hope it was entertaining. Uh, thank you for uh, supporting uh, Comic Book Podcasts, and uh, we look forward to the next 10 years and beyond. Thanks a lot. We're going to wrap things up with the future of fan culture. And uh, here's a description of this panel uh, from uh, the Comic Con uh, program. As comics have taken over the mainstream, fandom has become larger, more diverse, and more like the rest of popular culture, for better or worse. Our conventions are huge, our economic clout drives the entertainment industry, and our disputes have become entangled with culture war politics. What's next? 
Rob Salkowitz, the author of Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. Brett Schenker from Graphic Policy, the guy that has been uh, crunching the Facebook numbers that have been used by the other panelists. Heidi McDonald from The Beat. They use hard data to explore the changing demographics of fandom and its social, economic, and political dimensions. And I was pleased to uh, pinch it and uh, moderate this panel. I did it last year, and it was exciting to do it again because uh, the information is there. And uh, it is something that uh, retailers and both uh, store retailers and some of the very distributors of some of our favorite geek product seems to be reluctant to wake up to the the facts. And it's great to see that there is hard data there that, uh, you know, both creators can take to retailers, uh, manufacturers, content providers. It's it's a new day. And it's because of people like this that are watching the industry, collecting this data and uh, making it available for all of us. Um, it, it was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I present it now on Word Balloon. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks a lot for coming and, uh, you know, closing out the uh, con as you are with this excellent panel, The, uh, the Future of Fandom, Demographics and the Changing Business. My name is John Sutris. I host a podcast called Word Balloon, and I've had several other panelists on uh, my show before, and I look forward to the conversation. I moderated this panel this year. You're in for a treat because, as we all know, anecdotally, I think comic fans all think that it's a boys' club. And then, uh, you know, every now and then a woman will pop up, much like one of our panels, and say, hey, we like comics too, we like geek stuff. And now it's nice to see that there really is data to back up what anecdotally we've always suspected over the last few years. And to help us go over that data, we have, for example, uh, Rob Southwitz, who is the author of Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture, and weekly columnist at ICB2, Rob Southwitz. Journalist, blogger, uh, a publisher of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com and uh, Publishers Weekly and fellow podcaster as well of the PW Podcast More to Come, Heidi McDonald. <laughs> the blogger-in-chief at Graphic Policy at GraphicPolicy.com, Greg Schechner. I know we're going to start with the way things were in the past, and, and I think to kind of provide um, where we were and where we are today. Heidi has some excellent history background. That- okay, so yeah, uh, I know Rob and Brett have the most up-to-date demographics, but what I wanted to do is uh, talk a little bit about the past, because I think it's really interesting. And I, I very quickly, this is by no means definitive, but I uh, very quickly put together some previous studies that existed, just so you could see. Uh, this is the dawn of the comics industry in 1943. I mean, you know, the superhero kind of comic book industry had begun in the 30s. So this is maybe like, you know, seven or eight years in. But we see 95% of elementary age children read comics and 90% of high school. So they have pretty universal penetration at that point. Um, and I know there are gender studies at that time. Um, I just threw this up here. This was like a fact page of Wonder Woman written by the uh, tennis star Alice Marble, uh, early cross-promotion. But just, you know, to show that at this point in time, this is from around the same period, uh, you know, girls were absolutely targeted. This is a pretty, pretty strong statement that this is not unusual. This is completely normal. Here we see Carmine Infantino, then publisher of DC, you know, desperately reaching out to the youth market with a with bizarre floating heads uh, survey. Um, 
there was a 70 survey. I don't know the results of that. Uh, perhaps some scholars have, have learned it. But now let's go to 1995. So this is a survey that Jennifer Carlson ran hers. So, um, you know, you can see here... Uh, you know, the median age is 29. 80% of the readers are between 18 and 39. Um, you know, but the one I haven't read, 92% of the readers are male. Um, so we have really reached a place now where um, a single digit of female readers. And I, every, I, I again, quickly put together, but every survey that I saw during this period um, from like the superhero era on showed single digit female participation and readership. Very quickly, uh, this was the 2011 survey that DC did. Um, this was a huge survey they did for the launch of the New 52. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting survey. But even at that time, interestingly, they had three methods, in-store, online, and then an online self-selecting survey. And as you see, the self-selecting survey is 23%, which is pretty decent. But they did not go with that number. They went with a lower number of 7%. So, you know, we, we 20 years on see the same 7 8% of female readers. And um, so just to, and that's 2011. So just to move on, and, and I, I have this, I, I stole this from a wizard presentation that I, I did one time, but, you know, this is 2014. And as Rob and Brett are going to talk about, uh, here we see the 43% female, 57% male percentage. Um, you know, age is only 57% in the older readers. So that's, a, you know, it's gone down. The readers are getting younger again here. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. But, I mean, it's a real trough. It's a real, you know, opposite of a bell curve to see how, the, especially in gender, just how it was high, then it was really low, and now uh, it's, it's on the rise again. But that DC52 survey, it's interesting because did anyone see, I don't believe that the phenomenon is that, you know, just immediate, that here they all are, as Rob's, it, you know, information is going to show. So did anyone find out from a journalism standpoint what the breakdown was or what the mechanism was wrong with the... With the DC, DC survey? survey? Yeah. Well, um, I don't know officially. I mean, I can speculate, you know. And I feel like even in the long ago days of 2014, probably um, on a corporate level, it was more important to see superheroes as a boy-based, you know, entertainment. And I mean, it really, I think, you know, all of us can just sit here and be astonished that in four years, it's completely flipped. I mean, just revolutionarily flipped. And... Um, you know, DC has obviously done a lot more research than since then that they didn't make public. But you know, you see them doing the D DC superhero girl line, and um, you know, the success of Batgirl and everything. I mean, it, you know, it's it's definitely the research. Whatever research they're seeing now is is backing up a very different picture. So to transition with uh, information that I've already seen this week at a couple other panels, and also Rob, you've got a column on it as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, just to from what Heidi was talking about, in the 1930s and 40s, if you remember when comics first came out, comics were in mass media. That It was on the newsstands, everybody read them. But not only that, they were a, a hit across all different kinds of media. So you would have movie serials and radio shows and toys and all of this stuff, things that we think of as sort of modern day phenomena. In the 1940s, comic-related merchandise, comic-related media was also another way to get a lot of people into it that were not, you know, if for some reason you weren't buying comics on the newsstand, there was all kinds of other ways to enjoy the content. And we get into that 
that hourglass funnel period from the you know late seventies to the you know late two uh, thousands. You know, we didn't have as much media outside air cover bringing those fans in. So, to broaden the conversation out, um, for the last two years I've been working with Eventbrite, uh, the online ticketing platform, to do some surveys, not just of the comics audience, but of fandom in general. Because it's becoming a lot harder to differentiate fans of one thing to another. That, that people who read comics are also into video games, also into manga, um, also interested in movies, things like that. So just some quick things about the size of this market, because uh, fandom, uh, Eventbrite as a ticketing company is interested in, in this. They're interested in the live event portion of this more than, say, the publishing and readership side. So one of the things we determined is that out of a hundred, uh, sorry, out of a thousand conventions, more than a thousand conventions of fandom, uh, different interests take place across North America each year. Those thousand events generate roughly $600 million just in ticket sales. Now, every time a convention ends, they do an economic impact study and they say, oh, this con brought in you know, $10 million to Jacksonville or whatever. Um, the smallest multiplier I found was about 5x ticket sales was the economic impact. Uh, an event like San Diego Comic-Con, which is way off the charts, is probably about 100x or something like that. Um, but just at the most conservative multiplier that you can think of, this is probably a $6 billion business. To put that in perspective, the entire comics publishing industry, digital, trade, comic books, books, all of that stuff is just under a billion dollars. So the fan event business is five times the size of publishing. Um, last year we did this survey, we, we, uh, uh, we did it in 2014, and we found some pretty cool stuff. This year we went back and did it again. And the reason that we're doing this is to you know, dispel some of these myths and provide you know, what is really going on here. Um, because there's a lot of talk in conventions about the new audience that's coming in doesn't like the same stuff, isn't buying the same stuff, they don't look like us, they're, they're into cosplay, they're taking selfies. There's a lot of, um, you know, sort of anecdotal disgruntlement coming from organizers, exhibitors, old-time attendees, and things like that. And, uh, you know, everybody's, everybody's perceptions have validity, um, but at the high level, you know, to understand what's really going on, um, it's better to have broad-based survey data. So in 2014, what we found when we put out this survey um, among the respondents, we got 2,700 responses on the 2014 survey, and it showed a breakdown of about uh, 53% male, 47% female. But interestingly, when you get under age 30, it was exactly 50-50. So that by itself was kind of cool, and that was a big headline last year when we did this panel. This year, we added a third option for a non-binary gender uh, identity, um, and when you factor that in, when you factor in all of the responses, our top-line result across all fandoms on a similar sample was roughly identical male-female. If you want to get down to the nitty-gritty, I think there were 15 more female respondents than male overall. When you get under 30, it started to get really more female, 53, 47, roughly um, under 30. So that's a shift that we've seen, and you know, when you the survey was self-selected, and there's some thoughts of who fills in these surveys. When we looked at the other demographics, household income, geographical distribution, all of that stuff. We saw distribution where we wanted to see it. We saw bell curves where we wanted to see them. There's statistical evidence that this sample is representative. Um, it may not be perfect, but it's pretty strong. 
So this is, this is the face of fandom right now in 2015. Um, we dove down a little bit deeper to understand how do fans identify themselves. Um, so we gave people all kinds of options. Um, as you can see, you know, there's people who are fans of comic books and graphic novels. They're fans of science fiction, video games, uh, fans of one specific thing, whether it's Doctor Who or Star Wars, that sort of thing. Um, the largest group in the survey identified themselves as fans of comic and genre-based media. So that is people who are coming into this fandom through movies, through TV shows, through stuff like that, and then they come to conventions, and that's the fastest growing area in fandom, and it's also um, one of the most female. Um, and we can get into this a little bit more. So if you look at, so if you dig down into these different fan groups, even though the top line number is 50-50, what you'll see is that no subgroup within fandom is actually all that close. The closest that we get is fans of Alternative and Indie Press, which was actually a pretty small sample in our group. Um, that was the closest we get to a gender breakdown. And so if you look at it, the gaming, hobby gaming and video gaming and comic book reading is where the boys are. Those are the male fandoms. Um, and the most female fandoms are this comic and genre-based media, um, manga and anime in particular. Um, so, you know, when you start breaking it down that way, you can see that uh, some of these results that talk about top-line fandom may not translate specifically into comic book readership. We may not see this effect, you know, in the publisher's pockets, in the comic store's pockets, but we definitely see it on the floor of conventions. Um, one of the other things that we looked into was spending, because there's this, there's this perception that you know, the people who spend money at comic conventions or at fan conventions are the people who have always been coming year after year and that this new audience isn't here to spend money, they're here to do other stuff. That is uh, not correct. Um, if you look at the breakdown of fan spending, actually female uh, uh, attendees, so males spend more at the very top line, but there really isn't a whole lot of difference in how much money the different uh, genders spend at shows. Um, this was a question that we asked, so what do people like to buy at shows? Because this was another thing. It's like, okay, well, they spend money, but they're buying autographs, people are buying show exclusives, people are buying cosplay stuff. Again, according to our data, none of that is true. Those, are, those three things that I mentioned are the three least popular purchases at conventions. What people are here to buy are original artwork and prints. That was by far the number one thing. And there's a reason that the, that the show floors are jammed with artists selling stuff, because that's what people really want to buy. That's what they come here for. Um, the other big things are t-shirts and merchandise and stuff like that that are sort of non-cosplay items. Um, everybody pretty much buys that stuff. Lots and lots of people buy books and comics. They buy collectibles. The only people who are really that interested in show exclusives are toy collectors. Everybody else is pretty much not interested. And there's also a huge amount of almost hostility, like the largest never-buy category is celebrity autographs. <laughs> <laughs> like the, lar like the thing that said 50% of people cross their arms and say, no, never, and only 19% of people usually or always buy celebrity autographs and photos. So Eventbrite is gonna make this, this data and the crosstabs available to convention organizers to help them uh, plan their show floors, their exhibit halls, um, to fit where the actual patterns are um, because again, I think that, that a lot of it is being driven by preconceptions and it would be helpful um, to have some data behind it. This was a question that we polled on because of course, you know, 
even one incident where you hear that somebody is feels unsafe at a convention because they're being harassed, because uh, some jerks are chasing them with cameras, or or um, making fun of uh, of cosplayers who don't fit their stereotypes, or any of that stuff. So we hold. In general, do you feel that the fan events you attend make all attendees feel safe and welcome? And it was nice to see that that the response on that was upwards of ninety percent, ninety three percent to be to be fair. Um, thought that it was uh, that was true. And there isn't a whole lot of difference in the gender breakdown. That there's, um, you know, the, the percentages of five percent of men disagreed with that, eight percent of women, and a smaller percentage of uh, non-binary people with a, with a um, ambiguous gender identity. Um, so, so when you dig into who the people feel un- are that feel uncomfortable, uh, the people that have the most problems at their conventions are hobby gamers. The people who have the least problems are manga and anime event attendees. But by and large, you don't see a really huge negative response on this number. Um, so it's, you know, it's, again, it's good to see one is too many, but it's good to see that, it, that at least in our data set, it's not a, it's not a widespread phenomenon. Um, so that's pretty much all I have to say at this point. Uh, we'll get into some discussion later. Um, but, you know, my data set is about 2,200 or 20, uh, 2,300 or something like that. Uh, Brent's uh, is, uh, Brent's is uh, quite a bit larger than that. <laughs> and I wanted to ask, Rob, one of the things you pointed out was that women buy a lot of clothing. And something that I learned at another uh, panel earlier in the week, Ed Cato had a uh, women in geek business panel. And some women who own a, a comic shop in L.A., were telling me that a problem that women have in terms of buying T-shirts are a lot of T-shirts are really just cut for the male figure. Uh, women uh, who are not small have trouble finding clothes that fit them properly, and they wanted to order them through Diamond and couldn't because they said there wasn't enough of a market there to service this. Clearly, the evidence shows to the contrary. I just to, to, you know, I don't know if Ed brought this up, but I mean, there are very prominent vendors on the floor who sell T-shirts, and I, I won't name them, but they're you know long term. And I have often gone and said, "Don't you have this in girls?" Like, "Oh, we can't sell it. There's no girls." And I'm like, "I." But they, to their credit, they have changed. They well, have opened and, it up. And also, there's a lot of at least at this convention and some of the others that we've been to, a lot of real high-end apparel dealers, like people selling really nice stuff. They don't have fitting rooms. Uh, so right. my, my wife was actually considering something, and she says, I'm not going to pay this much for, for a garment if I can't like, try it on and God, make sure it's fit. You know, the, the Q&A of what the con can do better is happening while our panel is happening. I certainly hope that someone is making that point to me. If not, I certainly will in I, my email. I have a reporter on the scene, so he's going to Awesome. Very cool. And also, you got to credit, uh, it's an opportunity to cater to this now recognized and legitimized market and look at the businesses that have popped up like her universe and some of these others that can't there you go that woman right here is just like like me Evelyn, good for you man absolutely fantastic and no and that's truly i mean that is the great thing is where there's a vacuum there's opportunity and people are rising to the occasion and providing it but yeah it really is surprising that some of the old guards still don't get it and hopefully i i do think the tide is shifting we're all evolving and i think it is getting better We'll start mine. Uh, so for those who don't know me, I come from a, a political tech background, um, and politics today are all about data. Um, many, many years ago, it's been probably about four or five years at this point, uh, I decided to kind of take that knowledge and start applying it to the fan culture, primarily comic book um, industry, to see what we could turn up and see how things are going. So 
monthly for the last three years at this point, um, I pulled data using Facebook's um, advertising platform and look at the comic industry from everything from gender to age to um, income, their ethnicity, um, it, education. It, it's an amazing amount of data. Some of it's self-selected that people give when you go and you fill out your information or profile on Facebook. This is kind of the information that you're getting that people like me have access to. Some of it is actually appended through other services. Um, the amount of data you can buy on people is ridiculous. Um, right now I can think of one where I can pay pennies for every single uh, person that they can match and get about 250 di different data points. Everything from how much you have owed on your house to how many kids you have. Um, so the, the amount of information out there is absolutely amazing. So what we've seen over the last three years, three and a half years or so, um, monthly is growth, massive growth. Um, this month was the highest amount ever of 47 million people said they like and are interested in comic books. Out of, uh, in the United States, that's there's 191 million people. So that's 24% of those in the United States have some interest in comics. Absolute staggering number. The other thing that um, it's kind of hard to see just because it's way set up is there's usually a spike in the summer, uh, especially for the last few years. Why? Because we're looking at big budget comic movies. So people get interest, they come on, so we see the pattern that matches what's going on, which is kind of fascinating. Um, the other thing that's, I think, great that, we, that I've been looking into is the data that comes out of Eventbrite. Going into this system, it actually shows very similar numbers. General, fandom, um, though I don't have non-binary, I do have male-female, is definitely about 50-50 when you put in gamers and manga and comic fans all together, and it actually might be slightly more women interested. It's probably actually more like 51-49. Um, so there's other data points out there that I'm matching, and it all comes and matches pretty well. So uh, you can see the growth been consistently. Uh, this breaks down, so uh, I decided to start looking at Marvel and DC and indie comics over the last uh, couple of years, and you can see how it breaks down with them. Uh, the big thing that really drives the comic industry is I do include manga in there, um, and it's consistently about 60-40, 57-43, somewhere around there. Um, it's rarely, if ever, the giant the overall industry has been high, you know, 60-something men or high 30s women. It's always about that 60-40 number. Uh, but you can see individual companies like DC, Marvel are very different. Um, also interesting enough, in the last four months, I've actually started seeing a trend of men having faster growth than women. Um, usually my data seems to be ahead of the industry, I think. Um, so it will be interesting in a couple months if we actually start seeing that elsewhere. Men are making a comeback? <laughs> <laughs> I am biting my tongue for the jokes. <laughs> I don't feel like being doxxed. Uh, <laughs> but you can see, I mean, it's, it's amazing data that's out there. Uh, Ethnicity has actually been pretty new uh, as far as what uh, is available. Uh, Facebook, if I remember right, as a whole is at like 12.5% African American. Um, the comic industry is only 115 so it's a little bit lower than the average. Um, Asian Americans, I really don't remember. Um, Hispanics was interesting because I actually think the data shows that there is a market out there for Spanish comics, uh, Spanish language comics. Um, it might be niche, but it's there. Um, 
The other fun stuff that you can do is, and this is going to be really hard to see if everyone wants this, like, happy to hand it out. Um, you can see affinity of what people are interested in. Not just who they are and their age and gender and all that, but what else are they interested in? What TV shows? What, what celebrities? Um, what clothing? What stores do they shop, at, shop in? It's all there. And this gets even freakier. Um, so this is actually the, the data that I have access to. Um, you can see relationship. Are people married? Uh, are they interested in the same opposite sex? Education level. What do they care about? Um, what do they purchase? Food is high on the list, shockingly. Uh, but, and you'll notice hygiene is actually really low. <laughs> First time I did that, I'm like, I, I really can't type that up, but it was there. Uh, and, it, and what's interesting is it also shows how that compares to the general Facebook population. Um, people are interested in comic books tend to be uh, single. They don't own homes as much. They rent more. But I think what's fascinating is there was a lot of single parents in the population. Um, again, showing that there's a market for kids' books out there. Um, that I don't think too many people are looking into. And I think that was my last slide. But the big thing I also want to emphasize, not just on the data, is that anyone has access to this. I mean, I, if you want to talk about the future and kind of jump into that part of it, I truly believe any publisher, any group, any creator who starts taking this serious and actually using it and taking advantage of it, those are going to be the ones that are going to be leading. It's no longer going to be necessarily... Uh, the big two or certain properties, it's going to be the ones that are going to go out and build a community themselves. And you can do it cheaply and easily. I mean, we had Brendan Fletcher on our, our radio show about a month ago, and a randomly Gravity Falls came up. And he's like, I don't know this. And my, my co-host was like, you're right, Gotham Academy. It's the same market. You should be marketing towards these people. And he paused, and he's like, we don't know how to do that. And we're like, it's really, really easy. We'll do it for you. Um, but that's the type of thing, is that there's all these affinity groups out there, there's all these interests that all you have to do is reach out, and it's really simple to do. Um, the data is there. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg as to what's available, um, but just kind of want to get to the rest of the conversation, so. Yeah, and Heidi, well, would you say things like Lumberjanes are an example of that, yeah. and also some of the young, the, the yeah. kids, things like yeah. Kaboom, Kaboom that Boom is doing, and some of the other publishers as well, finally again, catering to this younger audience. Oh, well, you see huge girls at Scholastic. And I mean, if you yes. look at um, if you look at the book scan numbers, which are, you know, not public, but they are leaked regularly every year. <coughs> and I mean, every year you look at them, and it's kids' comics. I mean, I think Dork Diaries is not really a comic. It's been the number one. Um, you know, Bone is always up there. Uh, Raina Telgemeier's Smile is always up there. Um, now I'm... Yeah, that's another like hybrid, but there's one that's an act, uh, um, the one, and I'm totally, Big Nate, Big Nate. Okay. Those are totally 100% comics, and they sell like thousands and thousands of copies. They sell very well. In fact, I would say that in bookstores, probably like, you know, pound for pound, kids' comics are, are definitely outselling. Um, adult comics, but the, both both categories are very very strong. So also the trend of a lot of creators that used to make comics, mm -hmm. I notice, are now making young adult novels, mm -hmm. and I think that's really surprising. And everyone sees the success of Hunger Games and some of these other franchises. Well, they're, they're flocking to yeah. Percy Jackson, things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of um, just in the past year, there've been a lot of cartoonists who have gotten book deals that are for YA graphic novels. 
And, you know, it seems like a very organic, healthy thing uh, to me. Like a, It's not like a trendy thing like it was last time. So, so And they're doing very well. I mean, <clears throat> Nimona from, by, the, by Noel Stevenson, who was the co-creator of Lover James, is doing very well. And so we're, we're definitely, you know, I mean, there's no... <laughs> there, and you know, unless this boy, this man, comeback that that Brett is warning us about here, sorry, you know, uh, things things seem to be very much, you know, they're on a, uh, an ascendant. They're definitely growing. One one thing I noticed from uh, Brett's data on the um, publishers and the trends within the comics industry is that so my data says that that the fastest growing area are these fans that are coming in through the media door. People are watching the TV shows and seeing the movies and stuff like that. And it appears to me that the publishers that are making the their comic experience integral to the rest of their media experience um, are not uh, are, are more gender balanced than the ones who are putting their media tie-in properties off to the side and only distributing them digitally or doing you know like have that they're not organic to their main universe and it's like you know um, uh, so it's it's curious to me that that the publishers don't want to take advantage of where the growth is by being a little more strategic in their story strategies. Uh, I would even say strategic in their marketing. Um, I mean, perfect examples, uh, the, the amount of people that are fans of Gotham or Arrow or The Flash, the specific TV shows vastly outweigh and, and dwarf the comics themselves and what they're selling. I mean, how easy is it to, to say, here's an ad for a free number one issue and target those specific people. Well, I and, would, but, but, you know, I will say they do do... I, they actually brought this up at another panel I was at, at for the DC, and they, they pointed out that they do do digital first yeah. uh, yes. books or, you know, comics, and, um, you know, and I know Marvel does digital as well, so it's kind of, um, you know, that's what they're trying. Um, I'm not sure... I So, interesting, in the last month with the, with the DCU initiative, I've actually noticed... Online ads. Has anyone else noticed online? Like, are you getting tracked and noticing them? It's a brand new thing. That's only a minute about about a month, and they're actually their their page was broken the <coughs> first week. Um, but it was done from a content standpoint. Content was the, the digital first yeah. uh, books that Heidi mentions too, where Green Arrow and the Flash are still a bit more traditional. Green Arrow a bit more like the TV series, mm-hmm. but you get the Flash uh, is a year zero. The digital first that reflects the television show much more. And in fact, since post-convergence, the recent DC event, I noticed the first issue of The Flash felt much more like the TV show, and that was kind of interesting. And about time. If I could, if I could bust one more myth here too, is like the people see this data and they say, well, okay, so there's more like you know female people coming to the shows and everything, but they're not real fans. Like they're not, they're not, they're not as authentic in their fandom. So I don't know exactly how you would measure that other than some kind of, you know, like geek lie detector test. But we, we looked at three things that are pretty good proxy. So do you describe yourself as a super fan, a casual fan, you know, not a fan, just coming along with a fan, that sort of thing. That's one thing. Level of spending and how many shows and how much, how much you consume with this. And in all of those categories, uh, women have an edge over men in the intensity of their fandom across all of that stuff. Um, the most the the profile of the most frequent atten- event attendee is a woman between 22 and 30 is into fandom is into anime and manga. Um, she goes to five or more events a year 
20, something like 24% of women in that category go to five or more fan events a year. They spend between $250 and $500 in it. They describe themselves as super fans, and something like 35% of them are avid cosplayers. Um, and then when you look at that demographic, like the, the hardcore fan, what they spend on and, and, and how much they spend uh, tracks almost exactly to every other kind of fan. So it's like, like there's not really a big difference there. Um, interestingly, the one area where men predominate is that the profile of a big spender at a convention, somebody who spends between upwards of $700 at a show, is an older male comic collector. So I'm going to see what's in my bag. Uh, <laughs> so so that's, that's, that's one area where the... Where the um, the exhibitors on the floor who are selling old comic books, and if they're seeing, you know, uh, less, you know, uh, salt and pepper hair dudes walking the walking the floor, they might be seeing their their numbers shrink as a result of that because that is who their customers are. Um, but that's that's about the only thing in there that confirms the uh, prevailing perceptions. Build, building on that, there's a pushback um, from the old fan guard that isn't necessarily inclusive, and not only asks for the litmus test. But rather than making room or realizing that the geek world can expand with these new properties alongside the traditional things that they've loved for decades, there really is this resistance of, no, you don't belong here. Not only that, we don't even want your stuff alongside of our stuff. And we've seen that reflected in recent events like the Hugo Awards and some online initiatives and some very outspoken people that, again refuse to acknowledge the reality of, no, there's more room in this boat than you think. Well, I love that, you know, Brett ran some of his statistics, a couple, you know, maybe only a year ago, was it? <laughs> yeah, on, on my side, on the beat, and, I mean, it was, it is a classic. I mean, the comments thread was just like, like, how do you know this Facebook statistics are accurate? And, you know... Because I know what I'm doing, and I checked it against but, two but, other but, data sets. Right, but I was, like, you know, they were also like, you know, this is such a small sample. And I said, what, of 12 million people? I mean, what is this, what is the, you know, I am not a statistician, but even I know that the you know, margin of error in a sample of 12 million is, is not that high. I actually think that it's fascinating is that so many people have the idea that it's a zero-sum game, that if you gain, I lose, whereas yeah, it's so growth. It's just fascinating. And I can't quite figure out where this comes from. Like, why, you know, a, a book comes out that's geared towards women, why that affects me at all. Like, I, maybe it's not something I'm interested in. I probably actually am interested in it, but that's a whole other thing. But the, the fact that people will sit there and initially be like, that can't exist because I don't like it. I mean, there's movies out there that come out that I loathe, but they have a right to exist. There's got to be some market out there for them. In the mechanics of broadcasting, uh, people, you know, people, traditional terrestrial media was afraid of the coming of cable television, and cable just suddenly found itself alongside the major networks and local affiliates. The same is happening with online media, where, again, there was fear, but really it's just another avenue, and if anything, we're getting more content. And like we said, this taste is now happening and, and being shared, but again, there's this pushback, so. Yes, I see that, yeah, we've got some time. Yeah, we'd love to get some questions if people have. Please, Miss. Um, do you guys think that because data is so much more available, uh, that it's, because we've seen like small growth in, in the awareness of uh, what actual, what people actually like and things like that, and with all the data that you guys get, because of Facebook and then, you know, Tumblr runs all of their fed metrics, get all of the stats that are popular, just like on Google and Spaces, do you think it's going to grow exponentially from here, or do you think it's still just going to be a steady growth of 
people not really wanting to adopt how, uh, how much information that's a good question. Um, I think there's a couple parts to it. So I, I think the actual there's still a resistance of using the data. Um, I think there, there's a, some some places there's a resistance that this actually phenomenon exists, uh, which I don't quite get. I, I really think that uh, we're, it's great in stuff like Tumblr is that because they release that is that it allow it creates awareness of other people and they're finding it and it's allowing those communities to grow. Um, so I think there, it's going to kind of two things going on. There's going to be the folks who just deny it and, and aren't going to use it. Deniers. Yeah. <laughs> Data deniers. Uh, and then there's going to be people who embrace it and they're going to come together and they're going to build their communities and the communities are going to be fantastic and it's going to be you know, happy and wonderful and they're going to get along. And I, I think that's where you're going to see fan culture go. There's going to be this weird split between that over the next couple of years. I, I, think, uh, I think you're right. I think you're seeing that. I think um, if you look, and you know, I'm just guessing. I don't know. But, I mean, if you look certainly at Marvel and DC, you will see that they just must have some internal numbers that are saying it's okay to market to girls. Um, because there's just no way that Disney and Warner Brothers would release their grip and allow a Batgirl or a Squirrel Girl or a Ms. Marvel to happen unless they had some, some kind. And I'll tell you how I know that for a fact is because if you look at the toy market, they are still acting on the old... You know, the absolutely divided, you know, there must be one aisle, there must be a separate aisle theory. And, you know, I, I see people starting to ask now with, you know, why is there blue and black widow? Why is there no camera? You know, and, and they're, they're starting to ask these questions. And you know what? They don't have really great answers, I don't think. Actually, so the, the big things with the, the con that I've noticed um, that I think so many people miss, the Hasbro has a black widow and a Scarlet Witch figure. Which is fantastic, and I think without the outrage and people bringing that up, it wouldn't have happened. But the thing that actually blew my mind, I can't think of what the interactive thing that Hasbro is doing with their toys. Out of the nine stock photos they sent, five had women. Five had a little girl playing with the, the superhero toys. Oh, so they, oh, yes, because I even um, asked uh, by, Has, you know, by content at Hasbro when all that controversy happened. And, uh, like, the most controversy was over a Lego set that was a scene from... Avengers Age of Ultron that featured Black Widow jumping out on the, the motorcycle and for the Lego set it had Captain America so they had you wow. know, erased yeah. her from the actual wow. scene so you know and I reached out to Hasbro and I said you know what can you tell me about this and you know shh crickets um, they did not answer and so but I think that it, you know I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you know and yeah, I mean, this is this is a phenomenon that I see because uh, outside of the comics, I have other practice in marketing and consulting and stuff like that. And then there's all kinds of people who think they know better than the data. And it's the the higher up you get in an organization, you know, that you have senior people who've been there for a while who precede generationally, you know, all of this stuff. And they, you know, it's like, well, my experience says this, and you, these people have like cement heads. You can't convince them with anything that they don't want to be convinced of. And, you know, they're like, well, I don't believe in all this big data stuff. You know, you know what's worse than big data? Big ignorance. <laughs> Real fast before you ask the question, a horse race to watch this fall, the Supergirl show is going to be on at the same day and time as Gotham. Yeah. And, yep. I, and, and I've seen the Supergirl pilot, and we've all seen Gotham, and I think uh, Supergirl's going to kick Batman's ass. <laughs> and it's going to be no contest. And I still like Gotham, but I, I think this Supergirl show is going to open a lot of eyes. Have a lot of uh, offices. Yeah. So, um, as I'm working data in the 
different applications. Um, I'm looking at this and the thing that astounds me is the disconnect between the data and what is done. Because when you talk about erasure, if we started to look at black female characters, I will tell you apparently in the future and in Middle Earth, no one is brown, perhaps her. <laughs> so, you know, so what happened? Because you know, I grew up in the world of, of comic branch into anime, and so I very much fit just as you know what your data fitting. And now I actually have a real career, have nieces and nephews coming up, and can afford to invest in it the way I couldn't have when I was a young, you know, 16, 17-year-old fan. So how do you how do you have a business and not base your business on who would spend the money. Like, I, I just, it boggles my mind. No other industry would have this kind of data and say, well, okay, I know black women spend something like $26 billion a year, but you know what? Well, we don't want her money. It's just so, what, what can you say about this disconnect? Because what I see happening is the major players, because individual artists, I understand, they draw what they see, they draw what they experience, so it's, so it's very easy for the micro level to not be as inclusive as it can. But when we're talking about the major players in the industry, we're talking about major studios, major publishing houses, I see this world going the way of classical ballet and classical music. How do you not want to exist in a business sense? I'm lost for that disconnect. And it has to be more than just, you know, old white men in the corner feeling sure. this isn't real. Like, it's kind of like the tooth fairy. <laughs> <laughs> I think the good news is in animation, they are trying to be more inclusive. And certainly the new Vixen series is going to prove that. That's when you talk about the comeback of men, what I think is actually happening is the urban market is increasing. All of a sudden, you know, with Afro Samurai and you know, yeah. and there's yeah. this whole underground anime. That's where the world from Boondocks and everywhere else. So I think that's where you're seeing that growth come from. I don't think it's coming from the suburban, young, white. So I think you have the whole the Latino um, market is from. And so I'm wondering, like, how long can they function? Because you talk about Black Widow, I'm like, if I was holding my breath waiting for a Black Widow, <laughs> so what, how, do you, how do you plan as, as a thoughtful industry to move it from just being the data into being practical, this practical business decision making? Well, you, we should get you talking about stuff. You know? <laughs> and, I mean, you, you make a great spokesperson for it. And, you know, I, I battled in the 90s with this like firsthand with publishers because I was, you know, trying to, um, as an, you know, activist, I guess you'd call it, you know, I was trying to say, why don't you market to, to women? I think they would read comics. And, you know, I mean, like the reasons they made up, I just, you know, women aren't visual. I mean, I told over and over, I was told this, that women aren't visual. And, like, by people who ran the industry. And, you know, so I, I, I mean, I feel your pain. It, it, it is just like, it's, it's, you know, ignorance. It's just, I, I want the world to be the way I want to see it. You know, like the cement head that Rob was talking about. And it leaves an, it leaves an opportunity for somebody to come in and address that market. If, if people are going to leave that money on the table, it's not going to stay there for long. Somebody's going to come in, I mean, overfund the Kickstarter, like make somebody a star for addressing that market. 
and and show that there's power there, and that'll that should work. Um, you know, and I believe that Misty Knight. I have a feeling she's going to show up in one of those Netflix series. And certainly Rosario Dawson is night uh, night nurse, and Daredevil certainly help them. Um, so I think something that might connect what's been going on is do you have any data on the composition of the industry itself? If there's more women in diversity, if people who are actually working behind the scenes, because I think people tend to, like, people tend to create what they identify with. Is it getting better, Heidi, as someone who's been on the inside like that? Uh, I don't think it's getting worse, but I, I honestly... <laughs> I want to I mean, I do think it's lagging. I mean, I do think it's, it's, you know, I don't, you know, as, a, as an older person, I mean, you know, I've seen the battle won many times, and it wasn't won, you know? I mean, I've seen the same battle fought over and over and over. You know, it's like, oh, we have, you know, Dwayne McDuffie writing comics, so it's great, you know? Oh, you know, Christopher Priest is writing comics. Good, we're finished. We're, you know, job done. And there seem to be more women, though, and, and again, definitely. not enough. And I'm not yeah. saying, okay, thank you, ladies, we've got well, enough of well, you. I, I, full, I, you know? I do think that the, the, the you know gender certainly among creators is very you know we have you know they, the Eisners is practically yeah. I mean it wasn't a sweep but it was so you know incredible. Um, so I think that's really very well in hand. But I, I absolutely agree. I mean I think you know we live in a world that's that's so multicultural and so. Many different people, and every—I mean, I study this. It's like every culture loves comics. I mean, this—it is not a, you know, it is not a non-visual people thing. It is—it's universal. It's around the world. So, I mean, people, yeah, it's money on the table, absolutely. Sir, and then Cal. <laughs> I was just going to say, potential answer to that question as well. I, I study consumer psychology a bit, and. Uh, one of the one of the old theories that we that we often talk about in research is something called prospect theory it's from research from the sixties. But basically, says losses will margin the gains. It's more painful to lose five dollars than it is pleasurable to, to find five dollars. And it speaks to what Brett was saying before about about it being a zero sum game. I think a lot of people in the industry, it's not so much that they're that they don't want young women or they don't want African American women or Latinos. They're afraid if they go after that market. They're going to scare away the market they already have. And it's the fear of losing what they know that's causing them to be very hesitant to go after the markets that are potential. And it's only when this market, research shows oftentimes the, the potential gain needs to be two to three times what they're afraid of losing before suddenly there's a clip. Absolutely. And, and that ratio is a really hard one to get. Big hurdle. So it's yeah. like, you mean you have to have 60, 60 70% women? And a similarly small ratio of right, thirty percent. In order for it to feel comfortable on a psychological yeah. level, that's yeah, especially when, especially when the business cycle of that industry is like this, you know, and it's like you never know. Like the comics industry has been through so many ups and downs. It's you know the idea that that you know the only thing that has kept a lot of these companies afloat is that they can count on these you know hardcore Wednesday shoppers to come in. Like that's. You know, you can lose everybody else, but you can't lose them. And that, that, I think you, I think your explanation is uh, convincing, Calvin. Um, I, I think Rob sort of touched on this too, but I'm wondering uh, in, in this world like this, where we have big companies ignoring the data that's right there, how important is independent publishing, DIY, self-publishing, Kickstarter, whatever you want to call it, commission crowdfunding? Yeah. How important is this area? This fast growing area important to 
creating that kind of imbalance where you see that there are products out there that actually are designed uh, to appeal to this neglected audience. And because, you know, writing about publishing, you do see at some point that, that they realize that there is money to be made. So how important is that? Is this part of... It can be huge. I mean, the, the, the ads that I have done for other folks, the thing that's fascinating is the very broad ones are, eh, they, I mean, they do well, they're slightly profitable, or they break even. The ones that are fascinating that I've done are the very specific ones, where you're looking for a very specific audience that matches some, whatever they're looking for. Those do really well. Um, I think small publishers can go huge. I think the one ad that I consistently see on Facebook for me is Comics Tribe. And they're the, one of the few, and the other one that I think is fascinating that keeps on popping up, uh, coming up is Third Eye Comics. Consistently does ads that are relevant to what's going on, um, and they seem to target for like a 50, 60 mile radius, and it's always, hey, Arrow has started. You can read Arrow Comics. Come, come check us out. Here's the address. Um, stuff like that is huge, and I really think whoever does that and really embraces it the, the world's open to them. I mean, the, the for, there's 47 million people out there who said they're interested. Comics, what was it, six of them, like 10 of them broke 100,000 this month, like, or last month. I mean, the, the, there should be more readers and more interest. Yeah, I mean, I think what Brett was saying is that the access to the data is that gets more democratic. Like, right now, there's the yeah. no's and the no-nots, and it's like you can, the, the advantage that you have as an institutional publisher, institutionally published author is that you've got this organization behind you that has access to all this stuff and you can do it yourself but you're like you know um one-off um hard to scale hard to replicate we've just been given a stop sign yeah but i'll do real fast sir yeah real fast the demographics that you're talking about anime and manga four or five years ago anime expo 30 to 40 thousand last two years breaking between 85 and 90 thousand in los angeles there is a network of anime and manga conventions nationwide. Yep. This is yep. growing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting developing story. I'm glad to be ringside for it and glad to have experts like these two explain it all to us. Thank you very much for your attention. So there you go. I was uh, part of one other panel, uh, the Spotlight on Art and Franco. I moderated that. I'm uh, sad to say that uh, the recording for that did not turn out, and uh, it's it's too bad we had a lot of fun, and it was a good uh, opportunity to honor the guys with a biographic look at their entire career up until now, and uh, I'm very proud to be with them. Uh, they've got big announcements coming up later in the year when they've got new things. Uh, expect to hear them both on their podcast that I'm a part of, the Ah uh, Yeah podcast, but also right here on Word Balloon, because every now and then when uh, there's uh, some news to talk about, it's good to talk to them and uh, and do a proper interview as opposed to just the screw around that we uh, like to do on our panel as well. Nothing wrong with that. And, uh, of course, you get a little bit of that sometimes on War Balloon as well. But I hope you liked uh, today's inside baseball look at what is happening in uh, the, the geek uh, industry. It was another great Comic-Con, and I uh, look forward to uh, more next year. I don't do a lot of floor interviews anymore because, uh, as you know, I like to get into depth. And, in fact, on the next War Balloon episode, we get right back to it. Alesh Kot is going to join us uh, from uh, Image Comics talking about his new book, Wolf, also his new book, Material, uh, as he wraps up Bucky Barnes, The Winter Soldier, 
and uh, his Marvel work, and uh, we talk, you know, about uh, the the current books that he's working on, and also uh, why he's left the big two to pursue creator-owned stuff exclusively, at least at this point in his career. So Alesh Kot and more coming up on the next episode of Word Balloon. Today was all brought to you by the Cincy Comic Con. And uh, don't forget that uh, the Cincy Comic Con, of course, is happening in uh, northern Kentucky, September 12th and 13th at uh, the North uh, Kentucky Convention Center. It's going to be a great show. Tony and Kara Moore putting it on. Uh, Friends like Cullen Bunn, Rick Remender, Chris Burnham, Mike Norton, Mike Morisi, Eric Powell, uh, Mike Hawthorne, Comfort and Adam Love, or I should say Adam Withers and Comfort Love. Also, Ming Doyle, Brendan Fletcher, Cameron Stewart, Mark Schultz, just a few of the great creators that are going to be there live. Uh, Great programming, looking forward to uh, us uh, figuring out, but you can count on a Fables panel with uh, Matt Sturgis, Bill Willingham, and Chris Robertson, and uh, a a Fear Fear Agent panel with uh, Rick Remender, Tony Moore, and Mike Hawthorne. So uh, those are just two of uh, the many panels that we'll be doing. I will be moderating a lot of them. I'm looking forward to doing it. And uh, it's just a great show. It's it's one of the reasons why I've been missing some of the other conventions that happen in September because uh, it's a great opportunity for me to uh, great con- get great content to bring you here on Word Balloon. But you can be a part of it. And it, it's, a, it's a great uh, convention. It's uh, very reasonably priced. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful hotel surround the convention center right across the street. It's one of the most uh, convenient and uh, accessible conventions that I attend. And uh, it's just a great time. The 12th and 13th of September, Cincy Comic Con. You can find out more details by visiting their website, CincyComicCon.com. And I hope to see you there uh, for uh, this year's Cincy Comic Con. John Suntra saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners who uh, support me via Patreon. Uh, If you want information on how to subscribe to Word Balloon and help keep the lights on, help me get to San Diego and some of these other conventions and make some uh, excellent love connections, as I did this year at Comic-Con. Man, some uh, big names uh, have agreed to come on Word Balloon, and if the stars align, I hope to have them on in the weeks and months ahead. That's what I do at conventions rather than floor interviews is uh, shake hands and introduce myself. Some people shock me and know me, which is like insane. And not just comic book people, even uh, television and film people. And that that happened to me uh, this year. And it was uh, one of the most pleasant surprises. And when that guy comes on, uh, I will, I will gush at him. And uh, it just, it really, I appreciated it a lot, but he's another one of the uh, geek culture guys that has made good and, and making really interesting content and I really look forward to having him on Word Balloon, uh, along with uh, some other women and men that have agreed to come on in the, in the weeks and months to come. So uh, if you want to uh, help me uh, get to these conventions, if you can spare a dollar a month, that's great. Uh, if you come to wordballoon.com and click on the tab, you can see a couple videos, and uh, you can uh, support me via Patreon. I hope you'll do that. Come to wordballoon.com and uh, find out all the details. Also, uh, if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. You can follow me at Twitter under at John Wordballoon or on Facebook under my name, John Suntress, and uh, I'm happy uh, to hear your feedback. So uh, keep listening. More great stuff coming. My brain is still scrambled from San Diego. You might even hear that on the Alesh Khan interview as uh, I present that on the next episode. But uh, pretty soon, I think uh, everything will be all right. But I can't deny, you know, uh, it's, and I don't mean to complain, 
because it's a blast and and I, I always enjoy Comic Con, but it really does take a lot out of you. And uh, it, it takes a while to snap back. Imagine what the creators are going through. I, I, you know, they they even have more pressure than I do. And I'm just, you know, slinking around uh, saying hi to everybody and shaking hands like I'm running for office. But uh, looking forward to talking to you next week. Have an excellent uh, week. Summer has finally kicked in here in Chicago. I hope that's the case around the, the country where you live. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2015.